In this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast, I sit down with Justin Leiby. If you'd like to see the video version of this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast, we have pasted a direct link to the video version in the show notes for this episode. Justin is an associate professor of accountancy at the Geese College of Business at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I first became aware of Justin via an Al Jazeera interview. You might be familiar with this interview because we've shared and discussed it on this podcast in the past. In case you missed it, this interview was a follow-up to a documentary that was published by Al Jazeera Plus. The documentary was called Why It's So Hard to Sell Weed in Chicago, and in my opinion, the documentary was highly informative. I recommend checking it out. We've pasted a link to this documentary in the show notes for this episode. As I said, I first became aware of Justin via an Al Jazeera interview. On a broad basis, who this industry is attracting to work in it, and that's being studied by a professor at the University of Illinois named Justin Levy, and he sent us this video comment. To overcome inequity and inequality, what the cannabis industry needs first and foremost is better data. I and a few others at Illinois have been working with state regulators on a broad data-driven view of equity. Um, on the downside, we, we know that employees in general and ownership in particular is less racially diverse than it should be, but we're seeing encouraging things too. Uh, one in six employees in the Illinois cannabis industry identifies as LGBTQ, which is several times the national average. And knowing the industry attracts people who are often marginalized in our society and better understanding what improves their working conditions can help make this an industry that's truly for everyone. This interview was a follow-up to the Why It's So Hard to Sell Weed in Chicago documentary. Among other people, Danielle Perry, the Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer for the state of Illinois, appeared in this interview. I recommend checking out the entire interview by Al Jazeera. I have pasted a link to the Al Jazeera interview that features Justin, Danielle, and others in the show notes for this podcast episode. We recently sat down with Danielle Perry for a conversation which we released as an episode of the Chillinois podcast. In case you missed it, we recently recorded and released a follow-up podcast to the conversation that we had with Danielle Perry. I recommend checking it out. I'll put a link to the original episode and the follow-up episode in the show notes for today's episode. In the follow-up episode, we read an email that we received from the CROO as a reply to follow-up questions that we had sent following our original interview. In the email, I asked about a diversity, equity, and inclusion study from what I understood was required by law. They told me that they would be working with the Geese College of Business at the University of Illinois to process the data that they've received to date. In the email that I received, the Office of the Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer said that they are hopeful that they will release a complete report before the end of the fiscal year, which is June 30th. As you may know, we've traveled to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign in the past. In case you missed it, last year we sat down with Dr. D.K. Lee, a professor of crop sciences at the university. D.K. and I connected because the university had recently announced that they'd be offering a course that covers the origin and history of cannabis production, taxonomy and classification, including 
subspecies and varieties, cannabis biology, cannabis products such as fibers, seed oils, cannabinoids, and essential oils, and production management, including indoor and large-scale field cultivation, diseases and pests, post-harvest management, and more. This class is also a part of a new cannabis certificate program that the University of Illinois offers. I'll paste a link to that episode in the show notes for this podcast episode. As mentioned earlier, the Geese College of Business have been hired to collect and analyze data about the cannabis industry in the state of Illinois. According to a press release from the state of Illinois, which I've linked in the show notes, the initiative which is being led by Justin Leiby, the subject of today's interview, is designed to help shape the cannabis industry's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social regulatory policies. I reached out to Justin to see if he'd be interested in chatting with me, and he said sure. So I packed my things and made my way to the city of Champaign-Urbana for an in-person interview with Justin. I wanted to learn more about the study and hear some of the conclusions that can be drawn from the preliminary results. If you've never been, the campus for the University of Illinois is beautiful. The business instructional facility at the Geese College of Business is no exception. The -the state-of-the-art facility absolutely blew me away. I felt a little bit out of place in the facility, but nearby, in Justin's office, I felt right at home. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Chillinois. Today I'm returning to my alma mater, the University of Illinois, to talk to Justin Leiby. Hey, how's it going, Justin? Great. Thanks for having me. By the way, I said that confidently. That's totally not true. I've just always wanted to say, I'm back here at my alma mater. (laughs) (laughs) So I checked that off my bucket list. I've not graduated anything but high school, but Justin, welcome to the Chillinois podcast. How are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. You, uh, You were very convincing. I thought... I believed it. Yeah. I, I thought to myself, oh, I, I wonder, did, did, how did I not know he was an alum? <laughs> I believed it, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's not true, but I said it and that I was able to mark that off my bucket list, you know? So anyways, um, welcome to the show. Uh, give people, uh, I mean, and we just met too, so uh, introduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinois podcast and I guess to me. Sure. Well, my, uh, my name's Justin. My favorite color is green. No coincidence whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you got the shirt on too. Yeah, actually I do. By the way, folks, chillinois.net slash video. Hi, we're on video. So, uh, I'm, an, I'm an associate professor of accountancy at the, uh, the Geese College of Business um, here at Illinois. I'm also an, uh, what, what I guess we call, I guess we do call, a disruption and innovation scholar. Uh, which means on the, the downside, what it means is that I have extra responsibilities here. But the, the plus side is that I just get to do some, some cool things, uh, particularly data science uh, and technology driven, um, which has really given me the chance to, to work, particularly with our state government, but not just with them, on some, on some interesting projects to help uh, make, I think, the, the DEI initiatives and in particular DEI initiatives. In, What's DEI real quick? Oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Perfect. Um, in the state of Illinois um, and in the state of Illinois cannabis industry to be more successful. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was going to, I was about to say, yeah, you not only work, I mean, all data is cool, but 
this data is pretty cool, right? Yeah, this not all data data is cool, but but uh, but you know, data centric decision making is is a really cool topic because when you look around, other than places like in in, in the cannabis industry, growing plants yeah. is is very data centric, mm-hmm. um, data driven. Um, I'm not so sure about anything else on the operations <laughs> side, and certainly not on the uh, the diversity side. And that's true, really across. A lot of industries, there's just not a lot out there. Um, and you can like look at professional baseball; that's data driven. But you know, we we def- definitely need more um, more data driven, data centric uh, decisions. We we also need more empathy. But um, you know, not having one doesn't preclude you uh, from pursuing the other. Sure, sure. So yeah, we we recently sat down with the cannabis regulation oversight officer Danielle, and one of our follow up questions. It was meant to actually be. It was like one of the only questions I prepped them on, which was the diversity, equity, and inclusion study. And I just got so excited, I forgot to ask about it. So I, in my follow up email, I said, "Hey, I prepped you on this topic. I forgot to ask you about it. Uh, could you give me the answer? You know, give me the answer to the question since you were prepped on it." And they sent me that, yeah, that that uh, the state is working with the Illinois uh, Geese Business of of. Uh, Wait, College of Business? Am I saying yeah, that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, I got I about mixed it up there. Yeah, yeah. We, we, there's no standardized way to say business school in, <laughs> in the U.S. for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was crazy how it worked out because we had booked, we'd booked her and then we had booked you and I didn't even realize that there was going to be a... Uh, a relation between the, the mm. conversations, you know. Cool. So it's funny how it all worked out. This episode of the Chillinoy podcast is possible because of listeners like you. If you're able, please support our podcast by making a one-time monthly or yearly contribution of your preferred amount at chillinoy.net slash support. Your contribution helps us to afford fees that are required to capture, produce, and distribute this podcast. Once again, you can contribute any amount to us at chillinoy.net slash support. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So, so yeah, tell us uh, if you could. Um, actually, you know, before we get to uh, what you're doing for the state and and some of the cool things that you found, because um, I'm sure there's a lot of conversation there. Um, can you just kind of tell us how you got to where? Give me the highlight reel. How'd you get to where you are today? You mentioned before we got on air, you're from Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah, I graduated from undergrad a long time ago, 2004, worked for three years um, after that. But I, I always wanted to be a professor, kind of funny, in like a lame, a really lame dream when it all comes down to it. And some people want to be astronauts or surgeons, and I just want to be a professor. Uh, but um, it, was always a, it was always a target of mine. Um, and uh, really, I think it became a, a, a lot more likely when I, uh, I had a, a class in spring of 2004 when I was at the University of Pittsburgh and a professor like really was pushing a, a PhD uh, on me and uh, she noted that um, and to put it to put it bluntly um, the trade-offs you make in terms of income to get a PhD are not as big uh, when you get a PhD in a field like accounting or right. finance um, as it would be like in a field like say chemistry or, um, or English um, or another one. And, you know, I grew up, I was, uh, 
farm kid. So, um, you know, economic security was a very important consideration and that there's like four or five years, sometimes more, that you have to, you know, get out of the work world in order to get a PhD were suddenly not seeming so costly to yeah. me. So I'm, I'm like forever indebted to that professor for steering me down that path um, because I'm not so sure I would have ever really pursued it otherwise. Um, but I actually got my PhD here at Illinois and then um, uh, went to the University of Florida for my first faculty job. My research is really the, the, the um, psychological side of accounting um, and accounting judgment. Like what really makes accounting professionals tick? What are the biases that influence how they um, process information? And, and in particular, my research is about advice. Um, you know, how do you, how do you weight the advice from others and how do you um, really make recommendations to others and how does that differ from when you make decisions for yourself yeah um, which that sort of difference between self and other is really fascinating um I'm and, sure. and and during that time um, because some of the research also touched on status i kind of branched a little bit into um socioeconomic status equality and issues of dei um, which then steered me to here gotcha i i if I could, um, I don't mean to be, well, people are going to hate me, but you know what? I'm, I'm that kid too. I also came from a small farm town. How can I just ask you, like, how did you become cognizant of the fact that equity is something that we need to address as a society? Um, it's, it's, I don't know. And you, you realize why it felt weird to ask the question that way. It's like I was painting with a broad brush as if everybody from a small town is just not aware of that. <laughs> but, but. But you are. I mean, you know, yeah. you're right. I, my I, I don't school, think I had, there was maybe like three black kids in my school, just uh, to put it that way. I was going to say, we had, I think, two black families um, <laughs> yeah. uh, whose, whose kids were around, like around my age. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, you know, very white, very overwhelmingly Protestant, um, mm -hmm. not like evangelical Protestant, mainline Protestant, but overwhelmingly Protestant area. Um, uh, but really the first part of it that, that got me was income. So economic inequality was actually sort of my entry into uh, uh, into this area. And I, I continue to think, um, you know, we can argue about which is more important and that the reality is they're all important. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I'd say that in many ways, income inequality trumps racial inequality in some ways um, where, you know, a wealthy person can kind of do what they want no matter how they look. Now there are certain instances in our society where that doesn't work, but I was, it, it, it's, it, that was the perception that really led me here. And it was not the most, you know, sophisticated perception. Um, sure. I didn't appreciate all of the nuances. Um, but as time went along, um, in particular, uh, the racial inequality in drug, uh, arrests, drug enforcement, um, was incredibly hard to ignore. And it was part of an interest I always had in this area. Um, so it, it, to me, it was natural um, that if we're, if, if I'm thinking about, well, what is it that kind of drives a person um, who may not have grown up with very much to choose um, a certain course of study in college or, you know, what's drive, what's, what's driving first generation college students to do that? You know, you can't really, you can, shouldn't say you can't, you can you can um, think about income in a vacuum without thinking about race, but the two are highly correlated. Yeah. Um, so learning about one um, 
it kind of requires you to learn about another. And one of my colleagues, uh, a guy named Paul Madsen at the University of Florida, has done a little more research than me in um, on racial issues in accounting. And one of the fascinating things that he found is that when you look at historically underrepresented groups, it, at least in his in, in his research and, and also in the research we've done together, um, you can look at historically underrepresented groups as um, at least in terms of the data, not in terms of, of understanding the people or, or understanding why, but just in the what, there are blacks and everyone else. Um, the, the findings of, you know, in, for integration of historically underrepresented groups into the accounting profession, there sort of is a, 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 an observation for Hispanics, Asians, um, uh, Native Americans, women, and then there's what happens with blacks, which is totally different. And it's a good analog for um, enforcement of drug laws because yes. that also, in the limited amount that I've seen, because there isn't perfect data on this, is that sometimes, like for example, sometimes, um, you know, whites and Hispanics um, are kind of close in terms of, of enforcement, arrest numbers. There's an interesting um, study looking at uh, uh, 95 million FOIA uh, uh, records of police stops. Mm -hmm. um, it was published in Nature um, and just really looking at, is there bias in police stops? And, and what they find is that there's, there's sort of, whites are obviously lower than everyone else. That's not surprising. And, and then Hispanics, depending on the, uh, the test, were you know, certainly in between whites and blacks um, yeah. or close to whites, but it was always worse for blacks. There's something unique about the institutions of our country that seem particularly focused on targeting and, and you know, harming, really, um, black Americans more so than anyone else. Um, so we look at, like, the drug war. You know, there have been harms to the drug war. There have been victims of all races, colors, and creeds. But... I don't think it's controversial. It shouldn't be controversial at all to say blacks have had it worse. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, I believe the language in the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act is that uh, maybe maybe it wasn't in the law, but it, it was oftentimes used when you described, uh, when they would describe the social equity efforts behind the law, they would say that we're doing this to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, which disproportionately affected black Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, yeah, that's absolutely uh, the case. The, the other part I think that is used in that point is that, uh, to complete the, the quote, if I'm mistaken, I'm doing it off the top of my head. It's like, uh, while whites use at the same rate, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, it's right. not like, it's not like they're getting caught because they smoke more weed right. <laughs> or anything else. They are right. just more likely yeah, to right. be affected by these right. policies. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, there are probably many reasons for it. Yeah. Um, and reasons that I, you know, can only begin to internalize. Like there's so much of it I don't understand. Yeah. Um, but it's at the same time, I hate to use the word like fascinating or interesting for something that's so pernicious, but it is fascinating. And efforts to undo that or efforts to at least make it not as bad to just mitigate yeah. this they're very important and they deserve attention and they deserve to be given a chance to succeed part of it probably also too is when i say fascinating or interesting i'm really talking about it from like an academic point of view that it is something i i want to learn more about 
and I'd like to, to the extent I can, um, like bring data to bear to, 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 to build insights into it and taking it from that sort of academic view implies a bit of, um, neutrality. Sure. Um, you can't go into it like wanting an answer yeah. or, um, and so by calling it fascinating or interesting and I have that academic view, I, I am also, I'm not, I can't say that I'm neutral on it. <laughs> even, even though I think that that implies neutrality, I'm, sure. I'm not, um, I don't think you can be neutral on it. Right. But you try to, rem- I think your point is you try to remit it just like we do with anything. We try to study, we try to put in controls and blinding to, to try to remain neutral, sure. you know? Um, so anyways, uh, let's, let's talk about, let's get, get to the business of the hour. Uh, so like I said, we talked to the CROO, they said they're partnering with Illinois geese, uh, school of business. And I want to hear about this, uh, study that you're working on, uh, with them. Like Mm -hmm. uh, even like, like (laughs) when you were tasked with it, I know I am familiar with kind of how the law reads, but like, what was it like to be tasked with this? Right. Well, it was something we worked, we worked out kind of together, the regulators and, and me, um, because I had actually had, uh, the, the, the crew, um, Danielle Perry, uh, come talk to my class, uh, twice actually before we, before we kind of went down this path. And, um, I was really just interested in, um, DEI in general on just diversity and, and social equity efforts, particularly those that were, um, focused on a, a growing industry, um, something kind of new. I just wanted her to, to speak about it because I don't think our students get a whole lot of exposure to it. Sure. Um, certainly not from the perspective of risk, of organizational risk, which is what I, I teach. Um, so that was just a great opportunity. And then in just learning about and getting to talking, what can I do to help? Like, what can we do? What else can we do together? And what the regulators really had is a requirement in Illinois' Legalization Act, This the Cannabis Regulation and Taxation Act, there's a requirement in there that requires uh, the state of Illinois, and I think it requires her office specifically, to um, uh, report annually on diversity, equity, and I think it mentions explicitly barriers to entry um, in the industry. Um, And they they tried to do this last year, um, and it it didn't work as well. um, And, you know, we just... In getting to talking, I, I did let them know I research some of these issues and you know, I put together surveys and collect data from people for a living. That's my job. Yeah. Um, so I can help. Um, and we developed so we developed uh, three surveys, one for uh, uh, licensees in the industry um, and completing the survey. Uh, love it uh, is a requirement for licensure in the state of Illinois, which is fantastic. Um, so they don't have a choice. They got to do it. Um, one for employees and then one for vendors, okay. um, really to get into, um, demographics, sort of financial barriers to entry, cultural barriers to entry, um, in those three groups. And so we wound up getting, geez, I think there are currently 99, uh, licensed companies that have responded about 4,500 employees have responded, which it's probably it's a little it looks like it's looking based on what companies estimate their number of employees are and if you sum up all of what the companies estimate their employees are it looks like it's a little over 50 percent of the industry in the state that that we have responding and there are about 150 or 200 vendors who uh, responded as well so all that data is giving us a lot of insight into the diversity of the supply chain 
um, you know, information that's necessary about who's running these companies, um, who's, you know, not just who owns them, but who's overseeing uh, on behalf of shareholders, who's on the board, who, who are the executives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, who are the employees, which I think we, we uh, have talked about in the past uh, too, uh, which is kind of something that for some reason, nobody talks about is, is we're like, there's like an obsession with who owns the companies, but nobody cares who works for them. It's like, it's a, uh, or what it's, the working conditions or are. what the, or even, yes, even better yet, what the working conditions are. Yeah. Um, and that's important too. It's not like the thing that we're focused on is not important, but sure. You know, there is more, um, I think our attention spans are broad enough to focus on more than one thing. Um, Thank you. Well, we'll have to talk about that later. I don't want to branch off, but yes, we can focus on more than one thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, And so uh, we um, using using the survey technology the university has, um, obviously the contract writing a contract was a little uh, of a bit of a pain, but not not as badly as it could have been because we're um, I don't know how much I should say this, but I think this is all public record. So it's not like I'm revealing anything. Sure. But because we're both in, uh, uh, state agencies, mm-hmm. um, it's much easier for um, really the state to contract with itself than it, than it would be, say, for like a private entity. Right. Um, uh, the, there's just different rules. So uh, it was a little bit smoother in that regard. And then we collected the data um, really in December and January. Um, so December of 2021, January of 2022. Um and we've been and right as of now, um, we have a data uh, team um, as a student led consulting group uh, that's uh, working on a data management platform for the state. Um, cool. It's put it's been put into research ready form as far as I can see right now. Um, but the idea is building on um, some additional um, uh, authentication um, and authorization controls around the data and accessing the data mm-hmm. and then layering on some analytics to create an actual dashboard. Um, which to me is just kind of cool, creating a command and control yeah. dashboard to see, you know, we want to know, you know, what is the average uh, perception of inclusion using a validated scale? What's average inclusion at this company? And in theory, not in theory, in reality, I mean, they could do that yeah. uh, with this data. Um, and we're going to do some really cool things coming up. I think it's going to be un- unbelievably cool. Yeah, well, data's cool, right? It, data is cool. And the more of it, um, and I think I'm with you on this one, Data is cool and data is especially cool when you can start linking data sources together. Yes. Um, and so we've got something coming down the pipeline um, uh, with the uh, production data set um, uh, that every one of these companies um, has to use, the seed to sale systems, um, where I uh, am relatively confident that we can um, get that hooked up to linked up to the diversity data where the, the level of insight and, and monitoring and measurement of diversity and how the conditions in which it, it helps companies, the conditions in which it doesn't, and really the, maybe even the conditions in which companies are really pursuing it and they're not, um, will be, um, I mean, well, I think we'll be able to, to, to develop insights that no one else can. Like, for example, looking, truly looking at the equity in the supply chain. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and not just who are you contracting with, but what exactly are you selling them? Mm-hmm. Are you um, selling them higher quality products or lower quality products? You know, are you, um, uh, you know, maybe uh, if you're one of the larger companies, are you um, maybe carrying additional stock? Um, and this is something that they're going to, we're going to have to watch really closely. Are you carrying additional um, uh, inventory um, in your locations that are closer to like smaller operators? Because that would be a classic um, oligopoly 
or to use a better term, cartel um, yeah. move um, in order to knock someone else out of the market. It's it's sort of the uh, alternative to undercutting them on price. Yeah. If you're not competing on price and you're only competing on who has the most stuff, which I think is kind of the way cannabis probably is, people are less price sensitive than in some other areas. Um, you can simply, you know, you can undercut your competitors by just out keeping a level of inventory that they could not possibly uh, mm-hmm. keep. You can basically serve the entire market um, without them. Yeah. Um, so you want to be careful if companies are doing that in places um, where they're a little bit closer to smaller operators. And that's going to be very, very concerning um, upcoming when new uh, licensees are entering the market. The new Absolutely. craft growers, the new infusers, the new dispens, and especially the new dispensaries. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't you know, want to go too far down this tangent unless you got something to add, but like, I absolutely agree with you. One of my number one fears that we've shared on the show is like, as soon as a craft operator actually does have some shelves, uh, some products to put on the shelf, you're going to see this ply, the price floor drop in Illinois. Cause frankly, you look at these operators and the charge, the prices they charge in Illinois versus prices they charge. And I've got a buddy that lives in Arizona and a cartridge that costs in Illinois costs like $40 (laughs) in Arizona. It's the same company, but what they've realized is like there in Arizona, there's competition. I got to lower my price if I want to sell these things here. They're like, where the fuck are you going to go? By the way, we can curse on this podcast. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Right. Good. (laughs) Fucking ain't right. (laughs) Yeah. So, but like, where are you going to go? That's their view. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have started to go to, to Michigan uh, via reciprocity to take advantage of some, you know, good prices. But not everybody has that option. And that's what we hear all the time is that, like, look, you know, there's now there's over 100 dispensaries uh, in the state and there's, you know, going to be more opening potentially. Um, but when we started this, there were 55 you know? And so, yeah, it was kind of there. And they, I still, I believe they're still operating on the, like their modus operandi is what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Right. And it, you know, yeah, I, I don't doubt that. I know you don't want to go too far down this. I, I'll just add a note that it's not, you never know this. You have to see what happens in, in Illinois. It's not all just profiteering um, or, you know, as they rent extraction or whatever you want to call it. Um, because the regulations here are stricter than just about anywhere else. Yeah, that's so there, true. So there is there is that side of it. There are high compliance costs, but compliance costs aren't going to explain the the why you know N eight is sixty five dollars before you add tax. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is just not a competitive price in the long Yeah, and I mean the thing is wholesale prices. I'd love to see this data. I I don't think it's included in your maybe in your study. Maybe it is. But whole, I don't think it is, but wholesale data it, or wholesale prices are crazy. Uh, my co-host, Justine, used to be an agent in charge. And so she'd check in inventory and I'm talking over 100 percent markup. The ounces that they're selling for like 280 bucks, they got them for like 50 bucks, you know, um, and it's just kind of like I say, standard. I really think when we see new operators come on board, you're going to see a pri- uh, the floor drop to make it really hard for those new operators to compete. Right. And that, yeah. And that is, I know you don't want to go down this path. No, we can. We can. We have plenty of time. Dude, that is, Cole, I'm telling you, that is something that I don't believe regulators. And it's not so much the regulators here. I don't believe regulators and observers have thought enough about that. That um, 
there is a overall something of a zero sum game between promoting access to cannabis and which is particularly important for medical uh, cannabis patients um, and the the definitions of success for um, a diversity equity and inclusion program for cannabis people want this to be a and I agree with it that that they'd like it to be a generation an engine for generational yeah. wealth creation um, but in order for that to happen people, the licenses have to be worth something mm-hmm. and there have to be profits to be had. And that is directly in contradiction to a need for, or in conflict with a desire for lower prices. Um, and I, you know, Absolutely. I have my own opinion about which one I'd prefer, but I won't go into it as much as to observe that there's a, there's a big trade off there that I don't think uh, enough people have considered. Yeah. Well, why don't we why don't we just go into that real quick, and then I want to talk about the data and maybe some of the takeaways you've had. Sure. Let, let's go into that really quick because, uh, you know, I talked to Danielle, and she mentioned she speaks to the regulator in Washington all the time, and we've seen him on videos. Uh, he's a big proponent of the quote unquote free market, and I always have to step that back because. People think when I say free market, they think that like no testing, you just, oh, you right. know, all that stuff. Like, no, 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 <laughs> the wild we West. keep regulations, but there shouldn't be license caps. The thing you just pointed out, and it's something else that Danielle uh, described on the show is that, you know, the intent of this law and the intent oftentimes of capping licenses, uh, the, the, the amount of licenses that can be issued is to inherently, um, or sometimes I say artificially, inflate the value of that license. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, it's the idea that the value could create intergenerational wealth. Now, I, you know, um, I am just trying to learn about this because we have what happened in Illinois and people have their complaints about it. And then you see what's going on in Washington and Oklahoma and back to the, the regulator from Washington's comments. He said like, here's the thing. With a free mar- with our approach, everybody knows what they're getting into and nobody's getting screened out. Hmm. With another approach, and I'll loosely quote Toy Hutchinson really quick, she said there was 4,500 applications for, you know, 185 licenses. Right. Inherently, that is screening people out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's right is another question too because we had the social equity scoring built into it. So maybe right. that's okay that it screens some people out, right? Right. But the the fact of the fact of the matter of screening people out, it's like, well, is this is this achieve? And that's that's I feel like it's a huge debate in cannabis right now. Mm-hmm. Which which way is the way to a change? Uh, sorry, to achieve the most equity. <laughs> um, what do you, it seems like you have thoughts on it? What are your thoughts? On it? I don't. I, I I do, but I don't know that I I fall on one side or the other on that. I I hope that there's. A middle ground where the, the to use a cliche the truth is somewhere in between that you can have license caps um that do allow for yeah. some artificial scarcity um for the right to legally sell grow and sell cannabis um we'll come back to the grow issue in a second um but but the right to legally sell cannabis um that, to make that activity valuable 
um, to allow for some level of wealth creation, um, but also to keep it reasonable. Um, at this point, there have been enough states that have legalized, and I think we should have a decent idea of what the implications are of having so many dispensaries or so many people per dispensary or so many um, you know dispensaries per square mile, like, like what the actual... Um, implications that are. I mean, you, we know that in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, there are dispensaries everywhere. And, yeah, you can't and, throw a rock without one. <laughs> in Oklahoma, of all places. Yeah. And same in Oregon and probably same in a couple other states. And then a place like here, um, it's it's a little more restricted. Um, but, you know, that makes sense in light of the fact that this was the first state to include social equity as, as really as yep. the centerpiece of legalization. And it's, it's good that the state recognized that if we want to do this, we've got to make this valuable. But th- there's a, an element of this where I probably start to get like way too irritated that politicians far too much are treating consumers of cannabis like money pumps. And if you know anything about economics, you know money pumps don't exist. There's nothing that could, that's just an infinite supply of, of, of cash. And in this case... It seems as though people just are, are working under the assumption that we can abuse consumers as much as we want, tax them as much as we want, make it as hard as possible for them to just access the products that they would that they would like to purchase in a legal fashion. Um, uh, that there's too much of that philosophy that we can just do that and do that forever without any repercussions. Um, and uh, and the primary repercussion is people won't enter the legal market they'll use the illegal the illegal market um and accept the risk of whatever that is and we know as we started this uh podcast we know that um the illegal market works better for some people than it does for others mm-hmm. um and uh and that's that's a shame we might have gone a little bit too far and may con- be continuing to go a little bit too far in the high price high tax um, the consumers will just bear the cost no matter what. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they, they're treating it far too much like alcohol and tobacco in that, especially like tobacco, um, which it's not tobacco. So it's not going to work forever. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, I, one of the things I do think is important, there do have to be some caps. Uh, I want to paraphrase from, uh, actually, I think she is a university of Illinois alumni, Shaleen title. Yeah. Uh, she's an accountancy yeah. alum of, uh, Illinois as well. So. Yeah. I, I hope to sit down and, uh, speak with her one of these days cause she is just brilliant. And she, she published a paper, uh, called how to avoid a nationwide monopoly in cannabis or something to, we'll, we'll throw the link in the show notes folks. Um, one of the things she does say is that certain caps are, are good ownership caps. And it's actually something that we have in Illinois, um, where it's like, you can only have 10 dispensaries per entity, uh, three cultivation licenses per entity. And what's nice is like Cresco, one of the biggest operators in the nation, arguably just acquired Columbia care, which owned a few dispensary locations here in the state of Illinois owned a few, uh, a cultivation center, maybe, I don't know if they owned a few, but the point is that put them over their limits. We asked Danielle Perry about that. There's a whole process that where they have to divest and give up those licenses. The point is, I think those, those are good. Cause you don't want, like you said, I, uh, and Shaleen ends up using this word. I think she used the word monopoly in the title just because 
I, I need to ask her why, because I've spoke to economists and they've all used the word you used, which is all oligopoly and um, cartel. Um, which that's there's the, a, there's that's a the nasty version there. Yeah, it is nasty, but it's important to note, like from what I understand, like an, an oligopoly is required for a cartel to operate. Yeah. So that's, that's why those two, uh, relate to each other. I, I point that out because there's a lawsuit right now that said, that says monopoly and cartel. And it's like, ah, <laughs> I don't mean to get caught up in the details. Cause right. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I want to be clear. Right. I'm not an economist, but you know, when you talk to people and it's like, well, that's actually, this is what's actually right. going on. It's, so. it, it is, it, I'd love to do a study because I, you know, I want to go a little bit deeper into the, the nerdy wonky economist speak. Um, I, I personally believe it's probably a Corno um, oligopoly where um, they're competing on quantity, not on price. I personally don't believe you're getting an advantage here by undercutting your um, competitors on price for a product like cannabis for which consumers are fairly inelastic in their demand. Their demand doesn't go down all that much when price yeah. goes up. Um, you can just compete on quantity. Whoever's the biggest gets to win. And if you read... If you read, um, like for example, people who um, write about like uh, the, the the more financial side, the stocks, um, weed stocks, and things like that, some of the more thoughtful people writing about that stuff are acknowledging that like mm-hmm. size is is everything, um, right. and and until you know if uh, so if there's like proposals to put caps on the number of cultivation centers, the number of dispensaries. Um, you know, until that comes through, that'll be the case, probably. Mm-hmm. Justin, let's talk about the um, the study you're doing, and uh, uh, r- let's really quick remind folks because we kind of went off on a tangent. And I think some of the things it's funny, some of the things we talked about may even be things you've identified as barriers to entry. But what is the study like? The parameters of the study you you mentioned inclusion, diversity, barriers it's, to entry. It's very broad. Okay. The parameters are broad. Um, <laughs> And that's, and that's, by the way, uh, this is not me just aggrandizing them. That is a testament to the, like a compliment to the regulators in Illinois. Um, They appreciate research. They recognize its value. And uh, they all, they also are of that. We can focus on more than one thing view. Um, And so uh, they, you know, when I told them, um, for example, you know, Barriers to entry aren't just financial. They can also be like embedded within the kind of culture of, a, of an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lack of inclusion, um, you know, not feeling as though you're belong or valued, um, workloads that are excessively high, um, unfairness in performance evaluation, job assignment, things like that. Those are all relevant too. And there's a lot, there's a lot out there in the academic literature and scholarly literature, um, about this. And, uh, and so when I propose we should measure this, they said, okay, let's, let's do it. Um, so we have perceptions of inclusion at every single, um, uh, company. Um, no, maybe not every single establishment. We did ask for, um, employees to self-report both their um, company and their establishment. Not everybody did. So we can't, you can't map it perfectly one-to-one, but in theory, you, at least for every establishment and company out there, we can identify, you know, what on average was the inclusion, um, the level of inclusion or the, or the um, degree to which say um, company leaders cultivate a, a culture where diversity is, is valued. 
Um, these are the types of things you can only get if you're asking employees about it. You're not going to get you're not going to get an honest answer if you ask Cresco. Not picking on Cresco, but sure. just just, just the any first company. one that came yep. to mind. It's actually a testament to them that they're the first one that came to mind. Um, but you know, you can't just ask Cresco. Okay, self report to us. What is how inclusive are you? I mean, they would say we're really inclusive, super, inclusive. super duper inclusive. <laughs> and it's because they and it's not just because it's not because they're lying. It's because they would probably like to believe that. I'm yeah. going to I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they probably desire that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can't you know, obviously you can't audit your own work. So you're not going to necessarily get the most accurate answer. So you've got to ask people. Yeah. So the barriers to entry are um, on the on the company side. We ask about financial barriers. Um, we ask about management agreements, um, which is data that I haven't even had a chance to go through yet. Um, and a management agreement for, you might ask, what's a management agreement? Yeah. Or for me to explain what a management agreement is. Um, a management agreement is when, really in any industry, when a, um, say a smaller company, I'll just say smaller, um, you know, may not have expertise uh, in a given industry, or they may simply not have um you know, employees uh, to, to enough you know, employees, technology, capital, whatever, to really manage the scope of operations that they need to manage. So yeah. instead, they'll hire a um, another company to essentially manage the company on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And in return, um, that other company who's doing the management will get a, a percentage of the profits uh, of, of the company. Sure. Um, and so this is a big concern because obviously – you can see it's, it doesn't take too too much you know, insight to see where that could go and how that could go wrong. You have smaller operators who aren't as sophisticated, aren't as well connected, don't have the same um, resources um, who would get into the industry and then would essentially um, be sort of ripped off by larger companies who will come and say, yeah, for 90 percent of what you earn, we'll do everything for you. And that 10 percent may may still be really, really good um, for uh uh, uh, for the owner um, of the smaller company, but it's probably a lot less than what they'd be um, be earning um, if they were just uh, operating in the market freely. Sure. I'm going to move this just a little bit closer to you since uh, uh, we've got uh, groundskeepers keeping oh, yeah. this place beautiful. It's just picking it up a little bit, but it's all good. Um, yeah, yeah, man. That's uh, Sorry, I, were you about to... I, I felt like I may have cut you off by... Okay. No, so but I think it's just in conclusion. So there are management agreements. There are um, uh, we ask about um, oh what else? There's a lot. We ask we even ask about some sustainable business practice questions, so like just energy usage, consumption. Um, there's a uh, a lot of there's a lot of questions about community engagement um, and uh, like what they do. Wait, like, are you like you ask the community about? No, asking the companies what what they do, what the they do done for their communities beyond just creating jobs. Cool. Um, in fact, I think the question explicitly says, "What have you what, describe what you've what done, you done for the community <laughs> other than job creation?" It was asked in a nicer way than, sure, than, sure. than that, but um, you know, it's in some ways cannabis. It's not that cannabis is so unique in this regard, and that it has to be. A, a, an industry in which um, diverse, um, equitable, sustainable business practices are so important. It's no no reason it should be cannabis and not you know defense contracting or energy yeah. or anything else. But the, but the reality is, it's a hot topic in cannabis. The microscope is on cannabis, so why not cannabis? It's a laboratory at this point for us to test cool things. I was about to say it's, it's a laboratory. Uh, you know, I think we've got our own little experiments going on in Mm -hmm. each state. 
And like you said, what Illinois did to their credit um, is they started you, uh, involving social equity and part of the conversation. Like you say, yeah, it should be part of a, it's a problem society wide. I mean, in the interview that, that you were featured in, it wasn't, you were, you were just a segment in it, but one of the people asked, uh, uh, an applicant, you know, do you think we're going to uh, achieve e equity, you know? And she said in the United States of America, <laughs> you know, so it's like, uh, so it's interesting because we're able to have it under our purview and our control rather than it be. And that's actually, it's funny. Some people argue that at a federal level, they should simply decriminalize it, not legalize it and set up a regulatory structure yeah. so that, you know, at a bare minimum across the United States, it not be a criminal act anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you, these types of experiments could continue so that they're closed. And, and it's, mm -hmm. I kind of like it because it, it gives you the opportunity to work with your representative and they, your representative works with the other representatives and hopefully everybody in the community has shared values. Yeah. And, this is a tangent. I don't know how far we want to go down this line. <laughs> I agree. I agree with that perspective. Yeah. You, you've almost, perfectly captured my my view other than I, I don't like using the word decriminalized because for whatever reason i don't understand what it is that decriminalization um in the united states as it relates to this topic um always means just that literally just literally decriminalize it's still illegal right like that's where my that's that's where I balk at it. It's like it's got is the correct term. We talked to Justin Streckel, who used to be the head of Normal. He now started his own thing. He said depenalize. Yeah, is that yeah, that's okay. perfect. That that is perfect. I would trust him before I'd you know trust myself on on terminology or anything <laughs> like that. He knows more about it than I do. Um, that's perfect. Um, I would say there's one thing that I would love to see them do, and I don't think it's even possible. Would be if they if they legalize federally or depenalize federally, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. If there could be a nationwide database, I'll call it the hands-off list, recording whose records have been expunged. Because expungement, Danielle has explained this to me. Yes. And it's a, it's a, I'm sure she, she might have talked about it on your podcast. Absolutely. I, I did, did not listen to her, uh, her, her uh, talk, uh, her interview with you um, before I did this. So I should, I should have done that. It's all good. Um, is that, you know, that you don't know, you know, once it's, once it's been expunged, it's supposed to be gone. Mm -hmm. And so you can't verify what's not there. And there's a legitimate concern that it's not that everything that's being expunged, that everything that should be expunged has not been expunged. Absolutely. And it would be nice at the federal level, like a, a do not call list, but a do not call list that actually is effective. Like one that, you know, these folks, you know, were, 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 penalized under an unjust law it's done it's yeah. over and, you know and maybe you know does there have to be tax you know i don't think that'd be that expensive um i personally oppose i'm personally opposed to a federal regulatory infrastructure i am opposed to federal level taxes let alone a 25 percent <laughs> insane tax that is in the caoa yeah um and frankly I, I'm, I'm vehemently opposed to involving the fda in this in any way shape or form I, you know, to me, but they want to so bad. I, they do. I don't know what it is. It's the, the idea that the federal government, what um, the most dishonest, vindictive entity there is about cannabis is somehow going to be our savior. <laughs> right. Like, and then I see like lots of people do this. There's lots of scare tactics about big tobacco. 
And I'll say, for the record, Big Tobacco has no market share whatsoever in this industry in the United States. But I would personally trust Altria in, on this issue before I'd trust the federal government. I mean, Altria is not imprisoning people. Yeah. Altria is not arresting people. Um, Altria is not uh, like actively attempting to ruin people's lives because they have a past arrest or conviction for, for marijuana. And the federal government might be one of the few entities that's killed as many people as, as Altria has. So mm-hmm. they're, they're all in like the, the, the big leagues uh, in this regard. It's not that Altria is good, but on this one, I don't think it's as bad as, as the feds are. And plus, Big Tobacco's been defanged. For the past couple decades, anyway. Look, at a bare minimum, police shouldn't be involved in this at all, you know? And it's really, it's like a testament to, I I know that this is a very nuanced topic, but, you know, when you see a firefighter, usually you're not worried at all. And in fact, if you need them, you're pretty happy to see them. Right. Even if you need a cop. Yeah. Kind of a little hesitant to call them. Oh, yeah. No one says, fuck the fire department. No one says that. No, not in the history of of music have i have i ever or anything else have i heard that yeah. uh, expression uh, quite the opposite but you're you're right yeah that, and, that, yeah and a final thought and then we can try to unless you know feel free to tag on to this but uh before we get back to the study is like you know i hear all the time uh we're talking about expungements i totally agree one of the points she made on the show was how hard it is to ensure that that happens because mm-hmm. some departments have electronic uh, file keeping, yes. but other departments have paper. Yes. So it's like, Oh, it's a big deal to, to, to do that, which is crazy. Cause it's like, it was easy enough for you to slap me with that charge. It should be easy enough for you to erase <laughs> that charge in my opinion, but I know that it's, it's different. Right. Um, I, there's a lot of people on, I would say my side of the fence that say we need to continue expungements. I'd agree with mm-hmm. that. We need to grant clemency to all nonviolent cannabis offenders. I agree with that, but why do we need to add the phrase nonviolent? Like, here's my thing. If you hit somebody while you're high, we should still take the weed thing off of your charge. I agree. Like the crime was that you hit somebody. Right. Like, it's really weird that even like people on our, and maybe they're, you know, well-intentioned or that that phrase sells better. But to me, it's like, we don't even need to clarify nonviolent. It's just that whatever anybody did. Right take the cannabis out of the equation that that should not have been a crime yeah so anyways our representative uh the representative for like i won't just say mine but for where we sit right now carol amons yeah uh, she filed a legalization bill before the crta Mm -hmm. it it didn't even get a vote as far as i recall and the crta eventually was the one that everybody went with but in her original bill which was way better in my opinion um she wanted to include things like charge-ups or what, what what's the phrase um, oh essentially where they're where, where you use the drug uh uh, uh charge as a an excuse to um get more. Incre- to increase yeah. um uh other charges there's a drug-induced crime yes yeah. well yeah. well if you have like it's it's sort of like if you have uh if you're caught in and with with weed and a gun and you're in your car you got a you got a, a vehicle offense you've got a, a gun offense and you've got a uh uh, drug offense and the three together are way worse than if you just have one. So why shouldn't we be focusing on, on those cases too, and not just the ones where it's just weed. And I'll go one step further. Sorry, we're in down this, this, no, tangent. it's okay. Dude. This is I this don't is know why the hell we are in. And this is we, we uh, people on our side, we feed this where it's 
let's expunge every time we're talking about expungements. It's always possession. Yep. Let's talk about expunging offenses, uh, penalties, ending penalties, and then expunging um, uh, granting clemency for people who are uh, uh, serving time for growing. Yeah. Those are the really outlandish penalties. And then for sales. And if we're talking about um, equity, um, arrests, you can look at the data yourself. Arrests for um, cannabis sales are even more racially disproportionate than uh, arrests for possession. Wow. So let's go to the let's go to the source. Um, it's a lot thornier. Mm-hmm. It's tougher politically, and frankly, from a government perspective, it's also harder because if you're selling illegally, you're also interfering with the generation of tax revenue and all the other objectives that right. uh, legal markets go have. But it's a conversation that ha- that should be had. Yeah, and a one, uh, an attorney we spoke to here in town, uh, Evan Bruno, he said that because he wrote this uh, article for the Illinois State Bar. If people want to check it out, I believe it's called "How We Can Achieve How We Can Achieve Substantial Reform in Cannabis." It's actually one of the includes one of the topics I wanted to to speak with you about today, which is the fact we'll talk about this later after we wrap up the the study. Um, but the fact that cannabis possession arrests continue, you posted a great demogra- or a great infographic, um, showing that, that cannabis possession arrests continue. And he describes Illinois cannabis law as a tightrope. You slip mm. off of it and all of the old, penal- all the old penalties apply in full force. Um, and so, uh, where was I? Oh, uh, you're talking about selling and we only ever talk about possession. He made a really interesting point that you know, selling, it's funny, it continues to be a crime, like a felony. Right. Uh, and it's like, it should really be a business offense because you're operating without a license. Yeah, exactly. That Instead is a of perfect, a criminal offense. Yes, that is, yeah, I will, I will accept and assimilate his view 100, yeah. if it's a he, um, yeah, yeah. 100% because that's perfect. That, that is what you're doing. Yeah. You should be slapped with a fine the same as you would say for- If you're operating know, in a operating, farmer's market with yep, a, without a go. permit. There you go. Exactly. You know? A barber, an unlicensed barber shop there you go. or something or an unlicensed cab. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing worse than that. Yeah. Speaking of which, this might get us back on track with the, uh, the study here. Um, the, uh, the way that licensing works for employees, it's interesting. You get licensed as a hairdresser. You can go anywhere. You can cut hair yourself. Come over. You want to come over to my house later? I'll cut your hair. I got the license. Right. If you get licensed to work in the state of Illinois, you can only work at that one dispensary. Yeah. And then if you want it, like, it's not like you can be like, oh, fuck this place. I'm going to the dispensary across town. Like there's a whole paperwork process right. in which you got to switch that over, recertify. Um, anyways, I wanted to, uh, this was just crazy. I wanted to illustrate that for the folks, but, um, back to, yeah, the study. So we talked about some barriers to entry. Were there any other, uh, thoughts on, on that well, topic? There was one, one thing that, that struck me. Um, and, and I, I will I will note because I'm a I'm an academic and I also do this for the state's purposes that the data is is these are preliminary. You know, yeah. we haven't done this isn't something that I would just throw out there and put my name to it tomorrow. But I believe the general I like certainly not a level like it was 46 percent or anything like that. But I think the general trend is something that will stay up in the data when we ask people about people within companies. So this is we're asking companies, um, you know, what are the biggest biggest obstacles to uh, opening a business, a cannabis business in Illinois, and what are the um, biggest obstacles to operating a cannabis business in Illinois? Now, to some extent, you got to take the the smaller companies who responded to this and t- responded to operating 
a, a cannabis business with a, with a grain of salt because um, nearly none of them have been operating yet. So, you know, but they've, but they've certainly, a lot of them have people who've done this in other states. Sure. So it's not like, it's just completely out there. What was interesting to me is when we asked about obstacles, like top of the list, top of the list is access to capital, regulatory burden. Those are the top two. And, and there was a list of like 12 that, that we provided to them. And one of them was the lack of competition. That didn't register at all. And, and, and maybe it's the case that, you know, 10 years down the road, that'll be a big concern. Or maybe even six months down the road when everything starts going, people say, oh, yeah, there's unfair com- competitive practices or anti-competitive practices, rather, um, that, that, are, that are going on. But for right now, th- there's not a perception that lack of competition is the problem. There's a, con- there's a concern that regulators, um, you know, not th- regulations, I shouldn't say regulators, regulations, because um, a lot of them are imposed by politicians, um, are, uh, are, are making it very difficult to enter this business and to succeed in this business. And there's, there's limited sources of, of capital for this. Um, and so we got to get really creative to get money into the hands of the smaller businesses in the space. Who- yeah. That's one thing Daniel Perry talked about. It's like, we uh, focus a lot on getting people a license, but how can they get it off the ground? They need to be capitalized. Another thing you talked about is, uh, so can I, let me guess what one of the, the answers was maybe on craft cultivation side. I know I hear from a lot of craft cultivators that a regulatory burden they have is that the way the law is written is off the bat, they can do 3000 yeah. square feet of yes. canopy. Yep. And so that's why we saw a big push uh, by representative LaShawn Ford to, to uh, immediately increase it for everybody to 14,000 square right. feet. I don't believe that ultimately passed. Um, so I imagine that's one of the the regulatory burdens. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to guess another one, like you said, our testing is some of the uh, strictest in the nation. We partnered with, you know, Sun Times, uh, and they described that a lot of the times the products you find on on the shelves, maybe in Michigan, would not be on the shelves in Illinois, which hmm. is interesting to learn about. I didn't. I don't actually see that story. I got to. Yeah, check it out. Up. We're. I mentioned it. It's crazy. I was like, look, ma, I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the front page. <laughs> Seriously. That was crazy. Um, That's cool. Yeah. I've never been on the. <laughs> Luckily it wasn't a picture of me. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> it was just my name. So, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, if people want to look in, we'll have the link in the show notes, but it's, uh, the headline is what's in Illinois weed. Sometimes contaminants, Chicago Sun-Times testing fines. So that's the headline if you want to Google it right now. But yeah, they, they talked about the different thresholds, um, you know, that, that are allowed in Illinois. Yeah. And um, they basically did an audit. They, they purchased right. products from dispensaries and tested it. And some of them did go past the threshold. They shouldn't technically maybe not have been on the shelves, apparent, according to their findings. Um, so it was just an interesting thing. But... I would have to imagine that that is a, uh, a regulatory burden. Uh, in that article, they described a cultivator has built in a lab to their facility to make sure that they test before they send it to testers. Because <laughs> I ain't taking a chance of failing that fucking test. Yeah, right? I, that, that's that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's so, actually a positive thing. Yeah. Um, anything else? Like, am I hitting? On yeah, the I think you're hitting it. Yeah, the uh, I mean, you're you're right on the nose for the um, canopy space restrictions. We're actually going to be working with the state um, over the summer on, on that cool. particular issue. And like, again, credit, credit to the, to the regulators um, that they are actually listening 
and are actually trying to to um, go through. I mean, they have to go through the regular process, however flawed it might be, but they're trying to they're trying to undertake the steps to to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so we've talked about barriers to entry, regulatory burdens. Um, I don't want to segue too hard to this topic, but I did uh, unless you had other thoughts. But I liked the the topic that we discussed uh, while we were off air, which was the the rates of uh, employees and like their their pay rates, uh, sexual orientation, which was an interesting one. Like you get very interesting numbers there. But before we segue to that, was there any other thoughts uh Let's uh, let's segue. I can actually give you a bit of a stat that might be a good segue. Sure. Um, just operationally. So we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the industry. Um, I I personally believe that in order to you know advocate for the for diversity, for example, we should have a good idea of where we are. Yeah. You know, you you, you know, if you're rebuilding a a, a baseball team. You want to know the quality of your current players before you start, you know, trading them away or trying to find improvements. Um, and one thing that was interesting to me is that it, it is that it seems in the data, it's not a monolithic. The industry is not monolithic with respect to um, not uniform with respect to diversity, um, even within the same company. And the example I'll give you as a segue is looking at corporate headquarters. Um, dispensaries and cultivation centers. Now, of the three of those, um, the uh, corporate headquarters and dispensaries, while they're maybe not as diverse as we would like, and maybe they're not quite as diverse as the state of Illinois, they're getting close. They're about 65 to 70% white. I think Illinois is low 60s. The cultivation centers are about 85 or 90 percent white. Um, so and that, that's I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that the um, cultivation centers are like purposefully excluding because there may be there could be self-selection issues. Yeah, um, just, yeah. A- absolutely. Um, but there it, this is not just a single I guess maybe to put it this way, it's not a single target. It's not like, oh, there's the industry yeah, yeah. and this and, and we just have to hit the bullseye and then suddenly um, we'll achieve what we want to achieve because if you want everything to, and maybe we don't want every one of those types of businesses to look the same. Maybe it's okay for cultivation centers to be more white. Um, maybe we want dispensaries and corporate headquarters to be less white. I don't know. Um, that's not really for me to decide. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's really important for us to know the data and know what that is. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was a huge, um, like a glaring, um, uh, fact um, yeah, that, that's that came crazy. through in the data that, you are really, really um, not looking at, you know, just one thing. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you want to look, think about diversity in the industry, breaking apart the different types of businesses is probably a good idea because, you know, there hasn't, nothing has been done in Illinois to really influence this. Like nothing outside has acted upon the industry to kind of force it to be one thing or the other. And just kind of happening as it is, this is the way things have, have worked out that, you know, 20 percentage points higher in terms of, of its white representation would be the cultivation centers versus other things. Yeah. You know, I, you know, why that is, maybe we can look into that more deeply, you know, right. You got to start the what before you get to the why. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And like you say, it's just the data. So, um, that's interesting. So you're saying that, that like 
corporate and dispensaries typically are looking almost representative of, of what you would expect in Illinois, 60, 65. Yeah, I, I might be getting the number, the percentage white off, but I think in Illinois, it's in the low 60s and in the data, it's looking like it's going to be about yeah. 70%. So it's getting right. there. Right. But that cultivation number stood out. Yes. And that is much higher. I, I suspected it would, but I don't know why. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and it's, and it's not as though from what I've been able to tell, we ask, um, job satisfaction, mm-hmm. for example, of these 4,500 employees and not, not all of them filled out the job satisfaction stuff. Cause we didn't force them to do anything. Um, but there are 16 dimensions of job satisfaction and then just like an aggregate that you can create just by averaging them together. And I don't recall anything being particularly different across those types of businesses. So it's not like people in one business type, one people in cultivation centers are like enjoying their job more than dispensary employees or okay. not or enjoying their job less than, than, than these employees or perceiving that their jobs are any harder. And I don't recall anything about um, like education levels being that different. It's just sort yeah. of like um, well, through some selection or sorting mechanism or some combination of those, that's we've had one is a lot whiter than the other. Yeah. Can I ask you on those voluntary surveys, mm-hmm. did you get more data than you didn't get? Do you get my question? Like did uh, your response, you yeah, your response rate, like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to think about it in different ways. Like, you you bit you mentioned that you didn't force some of these people right. to respond, so yeah. I didn't know like what the return was. On oh, the response rate. Yeah, that. Oh, was Oh, right. For. Um, yeah. The only way you can get the response rate is to the only actually, it's impossible to know how many people could have taken it, um, because the 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 closest we could get is um, in the survey we asked each company to just provide an estimate, presumably this would be a good faith estimate, an estimate of the number of employees they have in the state of Illinois. And if you sum all of those together, you're getting a pretty good sense of how many employees there are in the Illinois cannabis industry, Yeah, um, not including the ancillary services. So we could divide 4,500 by that total number, the sum of all the employee estimates to get a, a response rate or at least a uh, how representative the sample is. And we would probably... If I recall, when I looked at the data, and I don't think all the responses were in, there were about 7,800 employees total across all the companies. It probably went up a little bit, but that would have us, if it went up a little bit, it would have us about 60% of the industry, which is pretty darn good. Um, you, know, you have surveys, generally speaking, you know, if you're in a company, even in like a company, you know, you're lucky to get 40%. Yeah. Um, and, and if, and if, and that's, if you have, unless it's like, about something very controversial, then <laughs> I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. If people, if people are like trying to get something off their chest, then yeah, you'll get, you'll immediately get that. But the good news about the survey is not just that because we got the large number, you can kind of say it's not just the disgruntled people who are um, answering because I say the average job satisfaction numbers are way too high for yeah, it to yeah. be the, uh, for it to be disgruntled people. And mm-hmm. unless 60% of the employees of the industry are disgruntled, which I don't, <laughs> you know, when you go to dispensaries, I don't think that's the case, at least not where I go. Um, you know, it's, it's hopefully a pretty representative, uh, picture of the industry. Obviously there are, there are possible exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's, that's, very interesting to hear because you know you see 
you see a push to unionize uh, right. crew from these different uh, locations and, and some have successfully done it. Um, and so a lot of that comes from, you know, frustration and, and sure. everything else. So I wonder if, since you said it was 2021, 2022, you did this at that point, people had started to unionize. I just didn't know if there's any way to factor that into satisfaction, you know, like, um, it, I, it kind of starts to get a little muddy, you know, it but it does get a little muddy. Um, you know, I don't, I can, yeah, I can, I can tell you without, without, with, with the proviso, this is preliminary and blah, blah, blah. Nothing that I do with the data, I think, will ever undo this effect. Um, sure. That generally speaking, if you look at job satisfaction, it's 16 dimensions. It was the amount of everything from the amount of autonomy you have to liking to how satisfied you are with your opportunities to work with customers, to help people, to retirement benefits, health benefits. Um, okay. The By far the lowest ratings, noteworthy in the lowest ratings were satisfaction with retirement benefits. Okay. Um, and then I think there was satisfaction with wages was lower than the other points of satisfaction. Now it, does, now it was still above the scale midpoint. So people were still on average satisfied. Um, but then you look at other things that where people are really satisfied, it's opportunities to help people. Um, opportunities to work with customers, um, mm -hmm. working with your peers. Yeah. Those, those all get very high marks. Um, unionization. I'm aware that unionization efforts were underway at one of the large MSOs. I won't mention this one, which one, cause I don't know how public it is. Um, uh, but, um, probably wouldn't change anything if we took that company out yeah. and just looked at everybody else. Um, well, and I know. was going to say, you know, it's not like it's, this is kind of something that's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Starbucks, Amazon. So, I mean, right. uh, it was just an interesting question. I didn't imagine that it would have any, yeah. uh, you know, bearing on it, but, um, yeah. So, now that's can I I can I will say for anyone who's who may listen who is like pro union I'll, I'll say that doesn't mean that the numbers wouldn't go up if people were unionized they yeah. they very well might um, but I don't know if that if like that was feeding any like yeah any of the ratings yeah and from what I've heard I mean that could be considered anecdotally you know it could be considered anecdotal but um, you know it's not like unionization has fixed everything, uh, for people and not that it always does, but the point I'm trying to make is like, uh, for example, um, well, I guess the comment that I've heard is that, that it's, it's not unionization. That's the problem. It might be the union that people have chosen to go with. So some people are going with, and I'm not making a statement on either way, but UFCW is a popular one right now. Teamsters is another one right now. Some people have started to make the argument that instead of maybe having like a food union adopting cannabis workers, that maybe there should be a cannabis workers union. Cause yeah. it's kind of different. You yeah. Know? So yeah, I don't, I don't really stand. I'm, uh, I would say that I'm pro union. I've had very good experiences with a union and I can see how, um, you know, contractually negotiated benefits uh, are a good thing. I mean, the, one of the things that was, I think hitting a lot of people were scheduling, you know, like I know plenty of people that, work in the industry and before they, some of them now that work in a union scheduling is so much more clear than what it was before because right. they've, you know, contractually negotiated that, Hey, we need a heads up. We can't just be notified on Sunday or whatever. Right. So. Could I, uh, could I ask a question of you? Sure. Were these dispensary employees? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's like back to that point about maybe 
maybe this desire, maybe the, the either what you could call it, the pressure to unionize, the, the need to unionize, the, you know, whatever it might be, that may differ across business establishment types too, where a company yeah. in Illinois that might be more on the um, uh, cultivator side, like a revolution might not, might not have that pressure that some, that another company like a, like a Cresco would mm-hmm. have. And, and, and I'm not, again, just picking just companies, using just using examples, not, <laughs> yeah. not revealing anything about those companies. Yeah. Might even be your favorite brands. Who knows? Um, Cresco, so. Cresco, Cresco actually does. Actually they both revolution and Cresco both do a good job, yeah. especially revolution. Yeah. Yeah. I've had good products from both companies. So, um, speaking of, uh, good products, we got some Chilinoy rolling papers oh. for you. Chilinoy lighter, some Chilinoy stickers. You know. So there you go. And, uh, folks, if you want some of your own, uh, rolling papers or lighters or stickers, just go to Chilinoy.net slash spark. We're giving them out for free. So yeah, I think this is going to go right up there. Hey, that'll right be, in the office. That'll be uh, an honor. <laughs> truly. So, um, so yeah, back to the, back to the study. Um, that's really good to hear. I would say, I don't even mean to say surprising. That's, that's good to hear that, that overall, uh, from what you've received, people seem to be satisfied you yeah know, so. yeah yeah it does i i didn't have any prior beliefs about or expectations about which way it would go yeah but just looking at the data it's you know it, it is kind of like a good thing yeah i will i guess i should say that it is maybe it, i want to say again this could be considered anecdotal you know because we look through life at a you know our two eyes and that doesn't know that's not always the truth right but um or the complete truth maybe um there's a there's a general negative sentiment I feel amongst some industry workers where they do feel like they're just a cashier. You know what I mean? And, right. Um, so I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't voice that. But that's why I find that data surprising. You know, what you received, people seem to be satisfied. And I wouldn't have thought about the different elements like helping people, the ability right. to collaborate, those different things. Right. Well, that's what. I mean, honestly, that's what my coworker said. She enjoyed about it was really helping people, helping people. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's, it's, it's true. And you are, you absolutely are. There are a lot of the lack of better term newbies Mm -hmm. who just want a little bit of input, a little bit of guidance. And in my experience, which is really limited to down, well, in Illinois, it's been limited to downstate Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the dispensary employees are fantastic. Yeah. They're fantastic. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Some of them, some of them recognize me, which is the weirdest thing. It's like, you, you cold? It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Yeah, so you don't want to be, you don't want to, it's just sort of same thing. You don't want to necessarily be like a, the, the, a VIP customer. I used to not made a VIP, but like a, you know, frequent flyer at like the, the liquor store. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> how I felt. I was like, oh, geez, these people don't know me now. You're here a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, some of the other numbers you got, uh, as far as like uh, uh, rates of, um, hmm, how am I trying to, I found that you mentioned it in the Al Jazeera episode, uh, the rates of LGBT. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I liked if you could phrase it for my audience, the way you phrased it, I, on that interview and to me, I thought it was interesting when you first said the rates of, you know, LGBTQ plus people in our society, and then you bring in the scope right. of the rates you got. I thought that was very right, interesting. Right. There's a couple ways you can phrase it. I think I phrased it as in in our society. But if you just look at and, and obviously the data is not perfect on sure who on what percentage of our society is LGBTQ because a lot of folks have a lot of justifiable reason to not want people to know. 
Yeah. Um, especially if you live in certain places rather than others where it might not be as, as accepted, but, um, it's about human rights campaign. Um, so I believe them, um, says that, uh, the rate, um, in, in the United States, you can think of it as, as about one in 25, one in 25 people, um, are LGBTQ or identify as LGBTQ. Um, a good chunk of that is people who identify as bisexual. Um, but that's not really that relevant because we didn't ask that um, in the survey. In the Illinois cannabis industry, it's one in six. And you, do, you can do the math pretty easily and say that if one in six people in the Illinois cannabis industry identify as LGBTQ, that's, uh, that's about four times, um, four or five times what, the, what we see in, um, in society at large. And to me, that's significant. Because what it means is that some, for some reason, for whatever reason, um, you know, folks who are, for the most part, marginalized in our society are gravitating toward this industry. And uh, I would like, first of all, I would like that fact to be just, I would like to know if that's the same in other states, number one. That would be a huge thing to know. Um, And I'd also like to know, um, you know, why? You know, what, what is, it? is, is this a, is this a sort of a, a selection mm-hmm. mechanism where there's sort of like, like a free sort of gravitation towards the cannabis industry or is it more sorting where you can't get a job somewhere else. So you go to yeah. the cannabis industry. Um, I don't know which it is. It could be both, um, kind of a combination, but, um, it tells us something about the industry to, that a certain group of people who are marginalized um, will, will kind of go to a stigmatized, a stigmatized industry. Um, but it's a place where maybe, um, you know, maybe it is more on average, more welcoming, more open, more inclusive than a lot of other industries. I, I don't know. Um, but if we're going to think about equity, we're going to think about diversity, especially this isn't so much equity as it's diversity. Really? Yeah. We, we've got to know who is attracted to the industry in the first place. And, um, while you can have, well, you can't get away from this issue and its connection to race. It, we're back to the, you can think about more than one thing. Yep. Um, diversity has many dimensions. This is a very important one. Yeah. And it's not one that gets talked about all that much right. as far as, as far as I've seen. Um, and if it's the case that in, it's not just Illinois, it's also maybe Matt, if it's, is it Massachusetts too? Is it? Um, Virginia too. Is it, uh, you know, California too? If that's the case, then that's something that, you know, for one, the industry, if they were smart and that they seem to be, they would embrace the heck out of that. Um, that, uh, that they're, you know, welcoming a population that, that does not, that is not made to feel welcome in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Um, now there are a few like wrinkles to that. We ask, this is a this this data may never see the light of day, um, and, and and when I say it may not see the light of day, it may not ever come out publicly with the actual numbers attached to it because it would be fairly sensitive. Sure, but we asked about multiple dimensions of discrimination, including have you discrim- have you experienced discrimination yourself? Um, and when I just look at the population at the sample of, of data that we have, and you look at the people who identify as LGBTQ and the people who um, don't mm-hmm. um, perceive discrimination is higher among those who identify as LGBTQ. Um, you know, it, to some degree that's, yeah, I hate to say it. It's not surprising, um, because, but it's also not good. Um, but I think what it, what it says is that this, you know, 
while it's a great thing, it presents unique challenges. Yep. Um, and it would be beneficial for us all if we care about diversity in a broad sense, broader than race um, and broader than ownership. Maybe, maybe we should look a little bit deeper into this. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. And uh, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that ever since we talk about, talked about it. And I, I don't know what it would be that would, that would gravitate that would cause these would cause us to see these numbers. I know I'm kind of caught up in this thought, but it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to even begin to guess, you know, but it's interesting numbers. Like my only guess, and I don't think this is anywhere close to the truth because the truth is so is, I think it's filled with nuance. Uh, but I'm just trying to draw a tangent, you know, uh, sexuality has been criminalized, which is very human. And drug use has been criminalized hmm. and it's very human. Right. And hmm. I know that it's much more nuanced sure. than that, but sure. you know, um, I just wonder if that, if there's some sort of like identify, somebody identifies like, like feeling like they're coming. I mean, I had to come out about my cannabis use and I still haven't done that totally. It's why I told you like yeah, before sure. we started airing that I don't say certain things because right. I'm not totally out, you yeah. know? And, uh, I've a, uh, I don't uh, want to sound insensitive, but sure, it, sure. It, there are some similarities. Yeah. You know? I, I've, you articulated that much more clearly than, than I could. I've had similar thoughts, um, with the proviso that I'm not, I don't identify as LGBTQ. So yeah, to same. some extent I have no idea. Um, but I, I don't at a, at a, at a high level, I don't know that anybody would think, would like actively think consciously. I'm part of a marginalized group. I should gravitate towards an industry or an activity sure. that is also marginalized. But there are, you know, more institutional pressures that may lead to that effect. And there's probably a lot of other stuff. And now that we're like sitting here, as, as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm realizing what I need to do is I need to do a research project about about this in particular. Um, and it might come down the road sometime. Um as long as in the intro you say, I was sitting on the Chillinoy podcast when <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, include, abstract, I mean. I'll include this amazing high, well, maybe not high, I guess it's already as high, yeah, yeah. Um, Illinois, uh, the joint rolling Illinois anthropomorphized <laughs> as a co-author. There you go. There you go. Yeah. His name's Chili. Uh, or, or their name's Chili. I don't know their how they identify. Yeah, so. yeah, it's a, a, a relatively, it's kind of three dimensional, but also kind of like flat. So <laughs> two dimensional anthropomorphized states that you cannabis may not ha may not be gendered at all who knows <laughs> yeah who knows <laughs> yep yep so uh so those are very interesting numbers are there anything else uh anything else that stood out to you uh with regard to like uh the breakdown and and yeah um not off offhand the stuff that's coming to mind um there's more subtle things um that generally speaking um you know we at we you know, we ask about inclusion. There's there are validated scales to ask questions where you can get a, a valid sense of how inclusive a person believes their workplace is. Um, in general, um, if you look at like black employees versus other employees, um, perce perceptions of discrimination are a little bit higher. Um, perceptions of inclusion are a little bit lower. Um, okay, that uh, you know it, it speaks to it speaks to an ongoing problem that I need to keep 
working on it. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll use the old, uh, the old expression. It's not as a hundred percent surprising, but you know, it doesn't mean we don't have to act on it. Right. Um, but, it, but it is, it is good to know. Um, the other thing that came out of it, um, is, uh, how underrepresented Asians are in this industry. Um, more so than, more so than the, uh, now really for, I've really taken a closer look at four, um, you know, racial slash ethnic identities. There's, you know, we looked at white, um, Hispanic, um, black and Asian and Hispanic, you know, maybe the, some of the reasons I said this earlier, maybe I didn't, I should caveat it that some of the inconsistent findings with uh, respect to Hispanics are that the Hispanics are defined inconsistently. Sure. You know, to some, it's a race, to some, it's an ethnicity, to some, it's its own thing, to some, it's a subset of white, you know, who, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, that's, that's its own problem. But if we look at those four groups, um, you know, it, uh, whites, I think I said were, you know, in the mid, mid to upper sixties, probably when you, when you average across all three business types, get in the cultivation centers, you're, you're getting into the low seventies. Um, but if you look at Asians, um, about 6% of the population of the state of Illinois and about 2% of, um, of, of the employees, Wow, which is really underrepresented, yeah. like, like, you know, with like black employees by comparison. Um, I think about 15% of the pop of the uh, state population, um, maybe about nine or 10% of the, of the industry. So it's underrepresented, but not like by orders of magnitude, the way the Asian population is. And, um, I don't know what the cause of that is. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what's driving that. And I think if you take laboratory employees out, it gets, they become even more underrepresented. Um, huh. It's a very, it's a very strange, I mean, it's not say strange, but a kind of an unexpected thing. You know, I had, didn't have expectations coming in one way or the other, you know, there should there'd be a lot of Asians or not many Asians, but yeah. I didn't, you know, I would have expected that they would be generally represented about the same rate as they you would see them in any other company. Yeah. Um, but not, not here. Um, is that part strange. of the study? The, uh, the labs, independent testing labs? Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, yes, the independent testing labs were surveyed as part of the vendor survey. Okay. Got, um, gotcha. The laboratory employees I'm referring to are people who work in labs for one of the companies. Like concentrate lab or something. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it's just, it's a slightly different, you know, element or, or, sure. or unit of, of the same enterprise. Gotcha. Very interesting. Very interesting. One of the things I thought you were, uh, that we haven't mentioned yet that I thought was uh, a positive for the, you know, look, we could easily be, uh, we steered into some topics that some people might find negative or whatever, mm -hmm. when it's really, it's just a conversation that I don't mean to sound negative. Right. One of the things, if I were to give a positive was that you said you found a, a kind of a universal standard, $15 an hour wage. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah, we asked people and they actually did, which was fantastic. We asked them, that's probably about the eighth or ninth question. So you don't start by asking someone how much money do you make? Because that's a recipe to have them just exit the survey. Sure. A lot of people did exit the survey, but um, they did, we asked them to self-report whether they are paid hourly or salary or some other format. Pretty much everybody's hourly or salary. And then, you know, just self-report what your wage is. And going through that, I could say with a few exceptions, which might honestly have been typos. 
because you can write 14 when you meant 17 if you just because the keys are right next to each sure. other on the on a keypad or you could write 14 instead of 15 if you're using the uh um the qwerty uh uh one two numeric uh, uh keys mm-hmm. um yeah i saw there was a def- it was de facto there was really nobody wor- working for these companies who's earning less than 15 dollars an hour which to the point of are these good jobs you know, we should care maybe you know, if we don't want to be promoting an industry where we have great diversity and ownership, but everybody's running a, a freaking sweatshop. Yeah. Um, and that does not seem to be the case um, where there actually does seem to be to the extent you consider $15 a living wage, which in Champaign-Urbana, it absolutely is. Uh, maybe not in downtown Chicago, but a lot of the state it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you're actually seeing these companies are in my eyes, um, doing the right thing and, and taking care of their employees and not, you know, shortchanging them yeah. on that, on that dimension, at least. Yeah. Which is, and I don't recall, this could be, you know, I, I'd leave it to someone like you, who I think watches, maybe watches things broadly more closely than me. I don't recall any like rule put in place. I don't recall even any like public statements that, that this by the companies themselves, that this is what that as an industry, we're going to do this. Yeah. I, I think I, I recall a couple of companies like making these comments, but it seems like everyone's kind of if, if someone led the rest of the industry has followed suit. We didn't see any outliers on this one. So there was no like, you know, Uncle Scrooge's sweatshop. <laughs> yeah. uh, Seven and, bucks and, an hour. Yeah. Nobody, nobody working. Um, you know, that, you know, those kind of what, what we, what the minimum wage actually is, um, there's a de facto, the wage floor is a lot higher. Isn't it like nine twenty five right now or something? Yeah. It's increasing. It's going to be stepping yeah, to 15. It's, it's supposed to be stepping to 15 way too slowly. Um, but that in this industry, that's, that's a positive. Now I did not look up, um, though. I would imagine it, it could be the case that people are working a lot of hours, kind of as you were alluding to earlier. Yeah. Um, there, you know, I, I could honestly, after, after we're done, I could, I could look it up um, just to see if that's sort of a, a standard or not. Um, but, I, you know, it could be the case that people are, are, are working a lot, which if you're paid hourly, at least you're, you know, you're earning a lot of money, but, you know, you're going to burn out if you're working yeah. six or seven days a week nonstop for, Mm-hmm. an entire year or more. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um any other uh, any other thoughts, takeaways on on the data? I I would say um stay tuned. Okay. Because I I believe that that the state um and certainly the college of business here, um the college of business here seems to be embracing um my relationship with uh with the state of Illinois um, and particularly the focus on social equity. Um, and the, the, the state is going to produce a pretty lengthy report out of this. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of other more like ad hoc um, disclosures coming out. Um, and then down the road, after we can link this stuff to more like production and efficiency data, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff happening. That's, both relevant to cannabis and relevant more broadly than cannabis. Yeah. Um, just, you know, for example, you know, under what conditions does, uh, do more diverse teams, um, operate more effectively, you know, in the literature, you know, in the scientific literature, we can say, well, oftentimes diversity works when the, the, the teams are also inclusive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can we can see that, but I think we can go further than that and and find out. You know, for example, is uh, you know, are are more diverse teams and maybe in more compl- inclusive environments? You know, is job satisfaction higher? Is productivity higher? Is the av- is the average um, sale per customer higher? Are people buying more premium products? Um, mm-hmm. Which for the companies, that's an important thing. Um, you know, are you getting people who are maybe um, going the extra mile to help consumers, satisfying the consumers, and then in turn, consumers will pay you back by, you know, doing more business with you. Um, mm-hmm. There's a long-term game here where uh, maybe not everybody wins. Those prohibitionists you talk about, they're <laughs> losing, and rightfully so, but just about everybody can win in this situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know that this might be a little bit out of your ballpark, but I believe that the answer that we got from the CROO is that we can expect to see this real data released maybe to the general assembly in June. Is that when, when do you, I guess I know that it's out of your ballpark maybe because it's like you hand the data over and then it's like yeah. the state, but when do you expect to have the data ready to be handed over? Um, th- that should be imminent. Like, awesome. like, if it hasn't happened already, there was a, a meeting on Friday that I wasn't able to go to where I think a lot of stuff might have been discussed. Um, uh, but we, I mean, the data is in a workable, um, you know, SQL accessible database cool. now. Um, some of it still needs to be cleaned up a little bit, um, particularly data on on race, um, just because there are a whole lot of people who made multiple selections. And you have, and there, there are, um, you know, well, w- widely accepted conventions for, you know, if someone says they identify as, you know, black, um, Hispanic and, you know, I don't know, Middle Eastern, North African, there are conventions for things you can do to classify them other than just saying all of these are other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still some cleanup that needs to be done, but I, I think, uh, um, I, my understanding you know, is that, uh, the data is in a workable format. Um, if it's not now, it will be very soon. Um, because I think if, if it's not, I'll be hearing about it and not in a nice way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, cool. And so, uh, obviously we don't know what the future holds, but from what you said, the, the way the law reads, it would be a yearly thing. So you did the 20, uh, you did December, 20, 2021, January, 2022. So again i know that it's hard to tell what the future holds but would you imagine you'd be taking data sending out surveys again this december i I imagine the objective will be to send them out sooner than that the intention contractual issues prevented us from getting it done and sending it out in november but the uh the goal would be to have this survey sent out so people could complete it before the holidays when you send out the survey do you explain Either it, I know it, it's like you got to be careful surveying. You don't want to influence the data, but right. how is it presented? Like, does it say this is required by law? And you don't have to just fill it out, but this is this is why we're sending it to you. I guess what I'm asking is, does it? Do we relay the benefit? Like, do we try to tell people like, please respond to this? There's a benefit. Absolutely. Um, for the companies, the the primary benefit you you impress upon them is. If you want to continue to make millions of dollars for a federally federally illegal activity in the state of Illinois, you damn well better fill this out. Right. You said it's uh, connected to license, yes. holding that license. Yes. So that's great. Which right? is fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, for employees, yeah, we did really try to, in, to do some messaging around have your voice heard. 
lots of people are doing this. You want us to have, we want this to be an industry for everyone. Yeah. We need everybody, everybody's voices to be heard. Um, and I, and then in addition to that, um, the companies were also asked by the regulators to, um, to, to, to really encourage your employees to do this. Um, and I could see, and I, I personally could see the data coming in. I was the only person who had access to see it coming in. And I could definitely tell some companies were really pushing this harder than others. Um, Cause you yeah. could see some where there's a hundred employees on the first day doing it. And then some you're not seeing anybody. And these yeah. are some of the larger companies, but in general, yeah, there was a multi-point push to really yeah. try to get people to do this. Not asking about timing and stuff, but do you have it broken down by response rate per company? Cause it does say a little bit about the values of the company you get what I'm asking? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. You got it broken down that uh, way? Yes, we, we do. And I can, uh, should, I can't, uh, um, I don't think I, I won't say the ones that did poorly, but I can say Justice Cannabis Company was fantastic. Well, they that doesn't the, seem surprising. No, it good. doesn't, doesn't. Which is a good thing. <laughs> they, were, good they, were, they were the ones that were, you know, you send it out, like, can you send it to your employees? And first day you get 100 people doing it, which I can't imagine that, that I'd have to look up what their number of employees in the state of Illinois is, but. That's a big chunk of their of their employee base right there. Oh, that's um, that's good to hear because that's talked to people ju- people that have been listening for a while. Uh, we had Cole Eastman from Justice Grow. Yeah. Shout out to another Cole. Um, <laughs> Coles around the world. Um, so uh, he was on, and you know they talk about their values and stuff, and you start to wonder whether or not that's lip service. It's, no, it's not for them. It, well, I can I can only say, in, in so far as as this, sure as. You know, telling your employees and getting your employees and really yeah, yeah. communicating that value, the value of data on DEI issues, if yeah. that is an indicator of them like walking the walk, they were certainly walking the walk on this one. Yeah. I'll have, we'll put it this way. It doesn't say everything, but it says something. It definitely says something. Yeah. And, and, and likewise in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. It also absolutely. says something in the other direction. I can say some of the, yeah, some of the big companies were kind of more, and, and not, and not, you can't all, there's you can't overinterpret. That's why I was happy to share the good one. I don't want to share the bad ones sure. or the ones that were lower because sure. you never know what that actually reflects. Mm-hmm. Um, but sense. I think that I think it's a pretty unambiguous signal that if you've got you know a hundred people on the first day from one company, that's a pretty good indication that the company was communicating it, pushing it, and and maybe they didn't have to push it because maybe they've been, been done a great job of communicating. That's it what I was going to say. It's like maybe and it's just sort of here, do this. And it's okay, we'll do it because yeah. we buy into the culture the same way that you all do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, cool. That's exciting. We'll have, uh, you know, data pre, pretty cl- pretty soon. And, uh, there will be more del- data collected even sooner than that. If there's any way we can help with, uh, you know, advocacy or whatever else, I'll be talking to you and the CROO, um, what I mean by that is like with regard to being like, Hey, you know, cause a lot of industry workers listen to the show. And so if, if I can get ahead of it coming out, like, Hey, you know, it's just about November, you're going to be getting this survey soon. There's, there's <laughs> that, value in it. That, that would be, I mean, that'd be amazing because it's not, it's, it's not trivial. The, I mean, the, the questionnaire is it takes, you know, seven to 10 minutes Mm-hmm. which is not nothing, you know, it's a lot easier to do something 30 seconds long. So I, and so I'll say to anybody who, who would be listening, who works for the industry, if they completed the survey, thank you. Cause that's, it's not nothing for you to take that time out and, and, you know, allow 
science and allow you know a better understanding of where we are with respect to diversity in this industry we allowing that to advance is a big deal and you're all part of it and it's and i greatly appreciate it yeah i really do so based off the data and then i think we could we can start to kind of just close out with some go all over the place conversation um do you have any i don't know if this is within the scope of what you've been assigned do you have any recommendations based off of the data that you've seen? I think right now it's too early yeah. to, to go to go to any recommendations beyond the the broad. Let's take a broad view of equity mm-hmm. and take a broad view of diversity. And and frankly, let's take a broad view of inclusion too. Yeah. Um it, the broad view will hurt no one and and help us all. Yeah. Uh, and I and I think Things like Asians are very underrepresented in the in, in the Illinois industry. LGBTQ um, folks identifying as LGBTQ are um, very heavily uh, represented, um, and it's worth more inquiry. Um, those types of things are not going to come through unless the unless we take that broad view yeah. and look and look beyond just what the politicians say our objectives um, were. Sure, um, let's take a forward looking view. Um, yeah. and look, look to what they could be. Right. Yeah. And I didn't imagine that you would have like any, it's like, this is how we fix everything off of, <laughs> you know, um, but because the other thing about data is that you gathered it once, but let's, it, unfortunately it takes time and collecting more data it to risk. And even then some of the conclusions you draw off of it, that doesn't necessarily mean they're true because more time and more data might mm-hmm. swing you in the other direction right. though. So, yeah. right. Yeah. The, it, this will become, all, you're right. It's all in, it's all in, uh, in three dimensions right now, but that fourth dimension is time. And yes. when we add time series to this, it'll be very interesting because then we'll actually be able to know if we're improving or not. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause, and I, I thought it was important to explain this for our audience. You know, it's not like, First of all, we've made the point that it's going to be a yearly thing by law. Um, but there's there's advantages to like collecting data and analyzing it. It's meticulous and you need to be able to compare and contrast and you need time, you know. And so. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm just glad that I live in a state that puts. Uh, or that seems to value collecting that data and seems to value the idea of how can we change things. Yeah. And know? yeah. And hopefully beyond also, also in, beyond just uh, uh, the future um, being able, it, what would be fantastic would be being able to compare across States and not just on the LGBTQ representation, yeah. but um, everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was actually going to be one of my final questions. I didn't know if you've, you know, since we kind of are pioneering the idea, mm-hmm. like Danielle's made the point that other states are now including social equity and in mm-hmm. like there's you've not seen a lot of states do it yep. now without it. So we've kind of pioneered that. Um, but have you seen anything like this done in any other state? I haven't. Not yet. Um, I've uh, I've talked to one other state where there was an in, there was some interest in at least doing something like this and really whether or not they. Whether or not we are the ones to help them, I don't really care. Um, what what I would hope is just that we have um, we have the da- we allow some data sharing, yeah. ultimately, so that 
we can make the comparisons. Yeah. Um, whoever's doing it, I, it doesn't matter. I'm vendor neutral and that includes, I'm not even a vendor, but we're non-for-profit, but yeah, I'm, I'm like, I don't have to be the one doing it. And probably it's better off if I'm not the one doing everything. Um, but if we could know, you know, how you can start to get a true, if we want to get to a point of standards and targets and defining success, we've, we've got to know more. We, got, we have to know, and we have to know more than just one state. Mm-hmm. Um, we need a more comprehensive view. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, I don't think we're going to be able to define success until we get to that point where we, ha- where we are at that point where we can make these types of comparisons. Um, and, and you, we can start, you know, data is a tricky thing and it's not like we're in a data rich environment here. It's tough. It is true. It is tough to even identify who the hell owns these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go through, you want to have a fantastic read. And I don't mean that literally because you'd probably fall asleep. Um, I, as a project, I just want to start going through, um, annual reports filed with the sec by Cresco, Cureleaf, all the, the publicly traded companies just to identify their ownership changes and organizational form changes over time. Cause some of these companies started as mining companies. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so yeah. like, and like, I'm just fascinated. And that's, again, that's not a bad thing. It's not like they're mining companies in like Burkina Faso or anything <laughs> like that. It's like in Canada. Um, but it's, it is, it's interesting mm-hmm. as to how the industry got to the point where it is. Yeah. Um, and, and even though if it got to a point where it is, and it, it currently is, you know, primarily white owned, you know, that's, I'm not going to say it's all 100%. Like, it's not like the companies all got together and said, let's, let's, let's all be, Let's only let whites in. Let's only mm-hmm. let, this is how the industry is going to be, and we're only going to do it that way. It, it probably there probably are a number of forces that that acted on it. Yeah, and I would just be fascinated, just fascinated to know. But it, we can start with ownership, um, but don't just limit to ownership. Really, we need we need a comprehensive view of, of what's going on because until we can define targets, we're not going to be able to define success. And yeah. and if we're not going to define success, um, we're leaving ourselves very vulnerable to the opponents not to like buffoons like smart approaches to marijuana they're like the the naked gun two and a half (laughs) version of of this they're just a bunch of buffoons but like the more the slicker um you know opponents you gotta be you gotta watch um especially politicians they're finicky and uninformed people very susceptible to influence um and so you don't want things to go to go south yeah mitch mcconnell is a perfect example where he'll be like uh, my favorite quote from him is I think he's holding a hemp pen and he says, I'm fine with hemp. I'm trying to do my Mitch, uh, but I am not okay with its, uh, illicit cousin. It's like, Mitch, I know you're not a scientist. Uh, you've made that clear, <laughs> but cannabis and hemp are the same plant. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> like, and, and, and the funny thing is like, you know, no matter how psychotic the guy is on other issues, Rand Paul is generally for at least for a Republican. Okay. On, on cannabis issues, he should inform the other Senator from Kentucky on this base, this very basic. It's basic. Yeah. Yeah. It's very basic. And just to go back to an infographic we, we talked about earlier. Um, I shared your infographic that I don't know if you made it or if you just found it. Um, and if I can, find it i'm sure i can i'll oh, play it right the now. chicago arrest yeah i yeah. made that yeah oh yeah yeah we actually did that i actually had made had students recreate that in my uh risk management class why the line why does there why is there this line that you so you're basically saying that past this line cops should still be involved right 
And that's what your graph showed, in my opinion, was uh, possession arrests. What that often means is that you've either exceeded your possession limit mm -hmm. or, well, I guess this would be a transport arrest. I was going to say there's uh, the way that the Illinois transport law is written, according to several attorneys that we've spoken to, people continue to get arrested because they don't have their cannabis in a, quote, odor-proof container. Right, right. Um, which is... Uh, I told Danielle, I was like, could you contact the state, uh, the Illinois state police and like hook me up with this odor proof container. And just to prove my point, I've made this point in the podcast so many times, but I've talked to police in this mm -hmm. area that went to the dispensaries in town here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I said, it smelled when you went in there. Right. And they're like, Oh yeah. And I'm like, is, is that not an indication to you that the moment a consumer walks out of the dispensary and gets in their car, they're immediately out of compliance with the law. If you can smell it, that means they're not sold in odor-proof containers. That's true. That's that. That's prima facie true. Yeah, that's a, that, like, that's yeah. That's a conundrum, right? It, no, it is. I mean, the, the, the you can have it, but I if God damn it, if I smell it, you're going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the I think a, a big one. I'd have to look back down in the, you can drill down into the arrests a little bit to get more data on them. I think a lot of them are also um, like in public places. Okay. Like if you're like outside, um, like on your you know, front porch is kind of a, it's probably a gray area, but if you're like in a park or someplace like that, you could, that, that is not legal. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to say one of the things that, that uh, the attorney Evan Bruno in his paper pointed out is that, yeah, if you possess it schools, and I believe that's universities included, um, all of the old penalties apply. Hmm. Possession is still illegal. That's that's just. It's um, I believe national park parks, like you're saying, um, yeah, it's it's interesting that there's he. I think he described it pretty well as a tightrope. So you're like walking on the tightrope, but if you slip off a little bit, all of those old penalties yeah. apply in full force. Yeah, that's uh, and that's um, unfortunately because because of the fed, a federal illegality. And because really all of this, all of what we're talking about is essentially just banking on, just trusting in the lack of interest by the federal government. Mm -hmm. That like you just, it's sort of like, we just have to believe that the federal government is not going to prioritize this in any way. And it really is that way right now because shout out to Coles in the world again. Yeah, Air, the uh, Cole memo. The Cole memo. Yeah. Um, I wrote it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, it's it was uh, thrown in the trash can by uh, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions the third. Um, I like to name Beauregard. His, <laughs> his Confederate name. Um, uh, <laughs> very very fitting for him too. Yeah, very. Um, he if, for folks that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Donald Trump appointed him as Attorney General. He's been quoted many times as saying, "Good people don't smoke marijuana." And one of the first things, or one of the first few things, he did. Uh, was uh, erase the Cole memo, which at the time was extremely scary because it's what medical cannabis has been operating on and now adult use cannabis. It's it's the guidance that the Obama administration had. Uh, uh, it's a policy memo that allowed basically a framework for states to function. And it's basically like, if you don't do these things, you won't have a problem. So interstate, commerce, children... Yeah, don't sell the kids. Yep. Don't fund um, illegal, uh, illegal activity. Yep. Do not divert to the black market. Yep. That's the price you pay to keep the feds away. Mm -hmm. um, now, unfortunately, a lot of these silly laws, that tightrope situation yeah. is just trying to negotiate like that that sort of price of admission. That mm -hmm. 
you know, you still have to, there's probably some, like, I'm not a lawyer, but there's probably somewhere, some like rationalization that we're still, that Illinois is still technically enforcing the CSA. We're still enforcing marijuana prohibition. It's just a little bit uh, narrower than it was before. Like these folks. It's actually are really okay. the way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but you gotta, like that, that tight, that's why it's a tightrope. Like we, you are allowed to walk this line. Uh-huh. Um, and that's it. But Illinois, has one of the stricter regulatory regimes in place of all the states that that legalized. Yeah. Um, which includes, unfortunately, not having home grow, which to me is like a yeah a borderline disgraceful. I will say that the medical cannabis home grow laws are are brilliant. I gotta give okay. uh, I gotta give props to I think Kelvin McCabe helped with the language. Uh, he used to be a member of Normal for folks that know that name. Um, Illinois normal, not Chicago normal. Um, the way that the, the, the possession law, the possession, sorry, the way that the possession section reads, and actually this was in our follow-up with the CROO. Um, it says that all cannabis cultivated at home exceeding 30 grams must be secured. Hmm. It's a weird way of saying, in my opinion, cause it's like lawyer speak. I don't see how you make this jump, but I've asked a few people and they agree that this is the legal interpretation. Um, what that means is that as long as you secure all amounts above 30 grams, you can have as much as you want at home as hmm. a medical cannabis patient. Hmm. Now, interesting. from what I've heard, the the card, I don't know if you've ever seen the card, it does have a, an allotment listed on it. Oh, I have so, a card. Oh, nice. There you go. So, you know, the standard allotment is mm-hmm. two and a half yep. ounces. So that is that refers to what you can carry in public. And what you can purchase from a dispensary in a two-week period. As you may know, you can get that increased as well. Pretty easy to do. Uh, But we asked, yeah, for clarification from the CROO. They stressed that this isn't legal advice, but they interpreted the law the same way I interpret it, the same way that multiple Hmm. attorneys have interpreted it. And I have to say that there was, I think actually Carol Ammons co-signed on this. There was a, a cultivation for all adults bill proposed and they use that language exactly. And I was like, you, yes, yes, because that language is perfect. What people call it is, people call Illinois a keep what you grow state. Uh-huh. Right? I like, kinda, it. Kinda like, I like that little. I don't, uh, I don't home grow um, for a couple of reasons, but, you know, it's something I strongly support it. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, and I'm, gl- I'm actually glad of all the things that kind of are too restrictive. Um at least that is a is, is I don't know if it's a loophole or just a a, a slick um I think a slick way of writing it. It, it, it. You could say it's a slick way of writing it. I I feel like we would be, and I think you would agree with this. Uh, but I I feel like we would be foolish if we didn't wrote that in because that's what everybody's question is. They're like, well, I've got the right to grow now, but it says on my card two and a half ounces. If I'm growing five plants, I'm going to yeah, have way more than two and a half ounces. And so I'm glad that we acknowledge that it, like through, through the law, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, this is one of the good things we got going for our right. cultivation law. Now you know? if we just get home grow for everyone. Yeah, be, it is. It is. That'd be a good thing. It doesn't even make sense to me why we couldn't like what I, I don't, I would love to hear the arguments against. I, Oh, I don't know. I don't know what arguments there. I don't think there are any good arguments against Correct. it. But yeah. Yeah, if, George, I re- yeah. if I recall, that's right. <laughs> if I recall correctly, and this is, I think this is mostly 
you know, what, from what I read that I have no inside information on this, but reading, like, for example, reading uh, Rich Miller, the uh, politics guru in Illinois around the time of the, the CRTA, uh, it seemed as though it was a, mostly law enforcement throwing a fit about home grow. And it's yeah. sort of like, and that was like a, that was also a, like a, an odd situation because they're going to oppose it no matter what, but it's like, how much are mm-hmm. they going, how loudly are they going to, gripe about this and how are how how much are they going to actually lobby against this and it's sort of like well they're gonna you're gonna save the bill so so to speak or improve the bill's chances tremendously by just losing this one provision um because he wrote at the time and he was right like you can't you're not gonna pass this without expungement you're not gonna pass this without the social equity provisions but you can pass it without home grow and unfortunately home grow just got kind of kicked yeah. to the curb so then we're in the it's us in washington right exactly in legal states where you can't grow it yourself which is kind of kind it, of kind of absurd it's it is not even kind of absurd it's totally absurd I, yeah, it, I, it doesn't even I agree it doesn't even make any sense and when you if, if you ever grow you, you start to realize it's like this isn't inherently dangerous uh, <laughs> you know it's like well, yeah if you're interested in like in not normalizing the activity. I'm, I'm, frankly, my biggest objective for cannabis would be normalization above any, everything else. But if you don't want this to be normalized, if you don't want this to be like funneling to the black market, if you don't want this act, there's so many things about it. If you don't want these activities going on, that you should love the idea of home grow. Um, Absolutely. But <laughs> I, this is speculation, but I believe that, that, so first of all, this isn't speculation. The state police, and uh, the Cannabis Business Association, which at the time was headed up by Pamela Altoff. I know her name because she made these statements. Uh, they opposed home grow uh, for all adults. Uh, interesting to see a Cannabis Business Association lobby alongside police. Um, not happy about that at all. And in fact, uh, if you look up the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association, yeah. They also produced a, a, a whole yeah. memorandum called the fallacy of home grow. And basically they just said, you're too stupid to grow at your home We're <laughs> it's dang, you know, you're going to use the wrong water or it's, you're going to get moldy product. You're too, they, that's basically what they've said. Yeah. And, and cultivators have made statements to us too, because we've asked why they oppose home grow. And they say, well, we don't oppose home grow. We support limits on home grow because we believe in unregulated supply chain, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, you know better than anybody else that I can't get my home grow into BioTrack. That's right. You know what I mean? So it's it's not like, you know, I'm going to be submitting my product like it. And even if I did, I'd be subject to the same tests you would be. Right. Right. So it's like that it's a slippery slope argument, but, um, but yeah, the, uh, so they lobbied against home grow. I believe the reason that home grow happened the way that it did and again, this part is speculation. Um, it's because the Illinois State Police have, un, I don't want to say unfettered access to the Illinois cannabis patient data, but we learned in our podcast with CROO, Danielle Perry, that they do have access. Now, I asked about firearms originally because some people have reported mm-hmm. that because of their medical cannabis mm-hmm. status, they weren't able to purchase firearms. And what I've found through investigating is that it, it's not the federal government that figures it out. It's the Illinois State Police that hands over data that ultimately causes you to fail that background check. And I'm like, well, how do they have access to that data? I decided instead of focusing on firearms, which aren't important to a lot of people, it's important to a small group amount of people, but 
uh, instead of that, I wanted to step back that question and be like, what access do they have? Yeah. I mean, and in what context? That, to me, that's the that's bigger the question, question, right? Yeah. And, and so the answer was, uh, well, first of all, they've had access to the Illinois Medical Cannabis Registry since the, they passed the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis. That, that, and actually in the, fa- in the past, they could just run your license plate and they could see if you were a cardholder. Huh. You know, what's funny is it shows up. Uh, I've had a police officer run my own plate. I was huh. like, can you run my plate? I want to see if my cardholder status. Yeah. They're like, it was weird. They're like, well, we have to prove that you own this vehicle. I was like, well, here's the title. Here's my license. <laughs> run my plate. And they ran it and they're like, they're scrolling down. They're like, okay, so here's where your license, you know, shows up your insurance status. Here's if you were a concealed carry person, this would show up. And under that is where your medical cannabis card, uh, uh, you know, status would show up. Huh. It, it is funny to me that it's next to concealed carry as if they're like related, like, Oh, he's got weed and a gun. Yeah. As, <laughs> as, yeah, as though the risk is even remotely comparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Like the, the notion that cannabis is in any way comparable to a, a firearm, <laughs> yeah. like regardless of what you believe about guns or about cannabis, like there's no comp, there's no comparison whatsoever. Right. Like what, like, what, Oh, was he going to do light a joint and burn me with it? Like, and frankly, really? we posted a picture back in the day. There was this dude, he's got a truck full of beer. He's standing in the middle of a <laughs> tobacco field with a gun <laughs> with, a and, it's, gun. and I was just thinking like, what if, he was standing in the middle of a marijuana field, a oh, cannabis he, field. Oh, well, he'd be with a, a gun. Felon. He would look like a criminal. It'd yeah. be a scary photo that's instead right. of an American photo. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's scary. Put, yeah, put a put uh, put him in a in a cannabis field and and with all that other stuff. Like, yeah, one of these things has never killed anybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> never killed us. Never killed somebody. Well, I shouldn't say never. It may maybe. Well, and never yeah, through overdose. We can get that. to that, but like, like uh, just to wrap up that point, I think the concession was, and this is what we figured out, is that the Illinois State Police, uh, if they pull you over and you have a lot on you, mm-hmm. and you don't have your card, which folks, you should always have your medical card on you. Yeah, keep it in your wallet. Yeah, keep it. It'll keep you out of trouble. I'm telling you. Um, but what they can do, it's like local law enforcement or whatever, if they. If you're insisting, they can look it up and verify your cardholder status so that you don't have to spend a night in prison or whatever the case may be if you're if you're way over your possession limit, but technically you're within your possession limit for medical. For medical, right. Um, so keep your card on you. Um, the other thing that apparently they query the database for is if local law enforcement say, hey, we see that Justin's growing. Does he have his card? <laughs> and they will they will look into that. So I don't agree with that, but it's the way that the law is written. I don't think they should have access to any of that information because in what other context do they? I don't know. Oh, Justin's, uh, Justin's growing coca in his apartment. I don't, I don't (laughs) don't throw the N word around too often. This is a different N word. So don't, don't, uh, (laughs) don't, 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 uh, uh, be worried. It's a four letter word. I don't throw the word Nazi around too often. To describe, but our state does have a a, a Nazi like mm-hmm. love of authority and just just particularly of police authority. We were, if you may or may not recall, um, up until jeez, like twenty thirteen or fourteen, it was illegal in the state of Illinois to record a police officer on video, <laughs> which is which is so goddamn unconstitutional. Like it's it, like it, it fl- it's, it's it's you can, you tell someone that and, and it's ridiculous. And John's. John Stossel, bless him, uh, with his mustache, was uh, was doing a special about it, and he and he had a. It was before the law was was thrown out by the by the courts, mm-hmm. um, 
it was a video of a Chicago cop attacking someone on a bike. And he said, you're seeing a crime being committed. But what you don't know is that the crime is not being committed by the police officer. The crime is is filming the police officer beating, assaulting a, uh, a cyclist. Like, really? We just it's for some and it's not just we also had in Illinois. Um, this was, I think, around 2011, 2012, too. I'm probably getting my dates wrong. We were also the only state that had no concealed carry allowed at all. And I, yeah, I love the fact that the courts like smacked us, smacked Illinois down and said, yeah, your your law is unconstitutional. And oh, by the way, until you write rules around this, everybody, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> it's for, it's anybody, it's anybody who has a fo- who had a FOID card sure. could um could in turn uh, carry I'm like good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just there's for whatever reason, it's a blue state. Maybe it's the old Chicago machine thing or something. But there's just there's a strong authoritarian bent to mm-hmm. Illinois state government that is um, kind of sad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> kind of sad. Yeah. You're seeing it here. You're seeing it in this in this context that, yeah, of, of course, we let the cops um, have access to people's medical cannabis records. It's supposed like, first of all, motherfuckers, that's me- first of all, that's supposed to be medical records. Right. Um, so can, can cops, uh, like look up, uh, who has Viagra prescriptions? Yeah. Can they, can they look up who's on Vicodin? Yeah. Adderall. Um, Adderall. Oxycodone, oh yeah. Whatever. I mean, find, find someone who's, who's who takes Vicodin or Oxycodone for, for pain, locate all of them. Suddenly you have a, like a carte blanche to write, any number of DUI tickets you want, because mm-hmm. if if they have a prescription for it, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to drive under the influence right, of it. Right. So come, come find out. Are you going to be able to look up whether someone just bought um, uh, uh, the like a uh, Theraflu right. or um, Benadryl? Right. Because if you take that, you sure as hell are intoxicated mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to drive with that stuff in your system. Well, you, you are in your system, but you just can't be under the influence and like, sure. you know, driving erratically. It's just a, that's just crazy. Um, I did not know that, that, that they could do that. Yeah. But yeah. It's something we just revealed uh, the other day and I didn't know either. I knew that the, the thing about the license plate and the, by the way, the thing about the license plate, I need to find the law, but I'm quite confident that they can't do that anymore. Uh, they can't just run your license plate and see your cardholder status. Good. Yeah. <sighs> On the other hand, it's like if they're using it the way that they're saying they're using it, maybe okay. I agree that they shouldn't be able to 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 be behind you and like there's a card holder. There's a card holder. Yeah, right. That's that's a problem. But uh, I I guess if I if I seemed like I hesitated at all, I was like, well, if they're verifying that you should be able to possess that amount, I don't know. No, the thing, sure, I got you. you know I got what you. I mean? it cuts, but there's a. I think the, the thing is way. though. I think the other, I think the thing is though. They should not. They can profile with the license yes, plate thing. They can. That's the problem. So, um, I guess to wrap up earlier, I alluded we can walk and we can do two things at once. And I was like, I want to talk to you about something like that. We kind of been talking about it this whole time. Possession limits. Like, I know that it's probably the tightrope we're walking on because of the federal government, but it's like one of those things that has to go because when I hear limits. I hear the continued criminalization of cannabis. Amen. (laughs) So, amen. you know, and we talk all the time about, uh, this is what I meant by walk and chew bubble gum or do two things at once. It seems like cannabis legalization now is very license focused and Mm -hmm. oriented. And Danielle Perry has made the point that that's not the full picture. And I totally agree with her expungements are part of that Mm -hmm. getting people, you know, out of jail. But Mm -hmm. I also think it's like, 
we're all we're constantly talking about let's undo the wrongs of the war on drugs how about we undo all policies that resemble the war on drugs so that we can completely so that because if we continue this way we're gonna it's like in 15 more years we're gonna have to be like so we undid the last war on drugs but now, now there's the to, yeah <laughs> exactly like, you're right you're right because the, who, what's going on now in illinois i mean possession arrest it's not just illinois it's Lots of places. Possession Absolutely. arrests are still occurring. Yeah. And maybe there's summonses, um, mostly at, for fines, rather, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, you're getting arrested and spending, uh, spend, get to spend the night and then go up here in court and then potentially yeah, it, uh, wind I mean, up on I probation. If, but still, that's not the point. The point is, it, you know, this is all still going on. And we t- you're right. We talk about let's undo the 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 ill effects the harms of the war on drugs and it's like maybe before we start talking about that let's stop fighting the war on drugs <laughs> yes. maybe that's where we start because right. like the CAO way which is just a terrible idea it's a collection of terrible ideas except for what legalizing. is the CAO oh, on, is it the federal that's the federal uh, that's Chuck Schumer's uh, okay. proposal and it's not um, the safe banking no no okay. um he, that's uh, is it like the is it like the evolution of the Moore Act? It's that kind it's, of this, it's basically the Moore Act's companion bill okay. in the Senate, but it's not just it's not just they took the the, the Senate the, the House bill and are going to refile it. Um, Chuck Schumer has his own, and Cory Booker have their own objectives, and they want to do their own kind of thing. And so they're yeah. You know, and I say this, I say this is that the CAOA is actually a thing. It's just a proposal. There's not even an actual bill yet, and it, and it remains to be seen whether it actually ever gets filed. Um, but that and the Moore Act both allow marijuana prohibition to continue in states that want to continue it. Yeah. So it's it's somewhat, and it's not any you know, any legalization is better than no is better than the status quo. Like, unbel- like I'm not rooting against yeah. the Moore Act or the CAOA. I, I, I if if that's what we're going to get, then that's what we're going to get. I'm happier th- with that than the status quo. Sure. Um, that said, man, oh man, if there's a hole in that bill, it's that in either of those ideas, it's that. We talk about undoing the war of the war on drugs uh, harms, and it's all of the disproportionate evils. But we're allowing it to continue in half the country, and um, I understand there's a political that's a political game. But you know, honest to God, neither of those bills is actually going to become law anyway. And if you're just going to take a stand, why not take a true principled stand and say no more? Yeah. Texas, sorry, Texas, if you want to you want to ruin ruin people's lives, go after. Well, there are many ways to ruin people's lives, but if you're a government, so. Find some other way to do it. Um, not not this. Yeah, Texas, the state of the free, the except st- for when it comes to uh, which compounds you'd like to interface with or anything you'd like to do with your body. Anything you would like to do with your body, literally anything. Yeah, and you know, I don't mean to get into Roe versus Wade, but it, you know, people, marijuanamoment.net made the comparison that, you know, it's like this idea that this nation wants to control what we do with our bodies. Are we the land of the free? No, it's... Your body, my choice. That's the uh, that's the conservative. Uh, I shouldn't say it's conservative. That's the oddball right wing view of uh, some on the American right. I won't I won't like besmirch conservatism by saying cause I probably if you think about conservatism, they should oppose the government stepping into your business. That's what they that's what they say. That's what <laughs> Don't they say. tread on me. That's like, what they say. <laughs> they fly anyway. those flags. Yeah, that's right. They're like tread on me, daddy. <laughs> please try. Please keep, keep, keep give treading me. on me. That's right. Yeah, please, sir. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Please tread on me. Please restrict what we can read in schools, what we can talk about in schools, what we can do with our own bodies, what mm-hmm. compounds we can interface right. with. But Just keep like, my taxes low. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's about it. 
Man, we we really took a turn for the for the worse in that. Just joking. Yeah, we really <laughs> just depressing did. topics. Um, well, cool, Justin. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I'd love to do this again with you in the future. Um, especially, you know, uh, since you're at my alma mater. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> Stolen Valley. That's a different thing. <laughs> exactly. I might as well be. You know, uh, but uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm really excited to see you know what the data that comes out, and and more importantly what we do with that data. Yeah. That's, that's going to be the cool part. There's going to be, and there's going to be some fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, any last words, uh, for, for folks? I mean, Hey, let's make a pitch for the university of Illinois. We're all Mm -hmm. about engagement, enrollment (laughs) and retention. Uh, we, we have been like, look, uh, because it's on topic, I'll, I'll, I'll rep for, for geese, uh, in this way, in this way, and particularly what we're doing in the online. Yeah. And we're talking about the geese, uh, school of business, not the geese that we, you know, fight with. No, not Canada geese. I don't like them very much. (laughs) This is Larry and Beth geese who are, who are wonderful. Um, and, uh, the college is named after them, but yeah, what we're doing in the online space, you know, these are degree, yeah, IMBA, um, they're all, they all have little I, um, uh, prefix, you know, this is, we, we were a, one of the first large universities, non-for-profits to jump into this space and even to this day, we are still offering an MBA for less than half of what just about anywhere else is offering it for. The college is walking the walk when it comes to democratizing education and improving access. Um, we had a $150 million gift from Larry and Beth Geese. Um, a big chunk of that is going to improve um, uh, uh, the equity and um, increase the diversity of our of our school. So. At the very least, this is a college where some fun stuff is happening. And I think I told you um, in a press release announcing the state and, yep. and the college um, partnering on the data platform. You know, there's the press release included a picture of, of a weed leaf. You know, how many top how many top colleges of business are going to do that? Um, this is a special place and I'm, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And great talking to you, too, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you. I I. I was excited that you applied and I was excited you're up to talk. Uh, like I said, been here, we've been here at the University of Illinois before. Folks, if you recall that episode with uh, Dr. Dok Young Lee, we'll probably be, be sitting down with him again in the future. Awesome, awesome person. Um, and yeah, we'll be throwing that press release in the show notes. So if you guys want to check that out from the University of Illinois, it's really cool to see uh, a school, uh, you know, an entity in higher education in our state leading the charge on things like this, you know, so um very exciting stuff. And, uh, well, till next time, am I, am I right? Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we hope you found value in this episode of the Chillinoid podcast. Once again, if you enjoy our podcast, well, it's funded by listeners like you. So just go to chillinoid.net slash support and you can make a contribution from there. So once again, that's chillinoid.net slash support. You can make a contribution of any amount uh, to help this, to help us continue to do what we do, you know. Um, It costs a lot to do this. And so any amount or any support that you're able to uh, give us is appreciated. And again, if you're not able to contribute money, share us with your friends, your grandma, uh, you know, anybody, everybody needs to listen to the Chill podcast. (laughs) So um, thank you once again for listening. And we will see you next time on the Chill podcast. 